Well, well, well. Back well, well, well. Some movies. Where, where, have, where have you been, young man? Have you been eating movies? <laughs> I, I've been eating uh, uh, quite a vast array of movies. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is I Eat Movies number seven. I'm your co-host, Mike, as always, joined by my good pal, Dino. And uh, yeah, we're back again. How are we back again? We're back again. And uh, we have um, less of a plan than we've ever had before. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They they call that free form in radio, which often makes for a terrible radio. But that's different. We're we're not like that. We're <laughs> we can riff we can riff or something to that effect. Sure can. <laughs> yes, yeah, so this is this is going to be um I guess the closest thing that I eat movies is gonna do at uh playing jazz, I suppose. We're kind of shooting a little bit more from uh the hip this week, taking a little bit of a breather from the exhaustive research uh that we typically do at oh, our Oh please, episodes. I've never been exhausted. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I look a couple things up. I could do such a better job, but anyway. <laughs> well, our well, I think our run times say say differently to other people. I think our run times are a little lengthier, but that's what we do. We try and serve you guys with a smorgasbord of uh, courses at the I Eat Movies podcast. But um, as always, before we kick off a new installment, we always want to thank you guys for tuning in to our past one, uh, oh, yeah. episode six. Kalinda was a quite a hit. Uh, we definitely had. A huge blast talking about Linda Cristal and, um, you know, two mm-hmm. two great features um, there. Uh, it's always a good time to talk Mr. Majestic, uh, some TV movie territory, our first horror movie that was. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that was a great time. Thank you guys, as always, for uh, tuning in and supporting. But this week, episode seven, titled Scene Report, compliments, yeah. as always, to Dino. Oh, oh God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. One so bad Dino. one bad word pun and I get complimented. Damn it. <laughs> but but since since uh, you are really the creator of that title, uh, why don't we uh, tell the folks a little bit about what we're uh, going to be talking about in this installment? Well, okay. Well, first off, I want to say I want to say that uh, um, outside of thinking, you know, focusing on things that we've been watching lately, because we are always watching movies. Um, uh, I have a long track record of not knowing shit about modern TV. You know, like, like, forget, like, water cooler talk or whatever. I can't, people ask me about stuff that's on TV, and I'm like, I don't even know what, what platform that is. Because yeah, I just watch movies all day long. Outside of that, um, we are missing, uh, I just want to say we are, we are, we are trying to distract ourselves by recording tonight, effectively, because we're both missing uh, um, a drive-in movie at our favorite drive-in, The Mahoning, tonight. Oh. <laughs> it, it's the elephant in the room, No. Yes, it is. Yes, this that it's always a heartbreaker when we have to miss any sort of anticipated show at um, the Mighty Mahoning Drive. And yes, we are missing a 35 millimeter print of Escape from New York, um, a film that I can only surmise that me and Dino have seen countless times. In and, our we, and we've now we've now just lost like three of the four listeners we uh, we have because <laughs> they're like, fuck these guys. They don't like John Carpenter. We love John Carpenter. It's just, you know, um, for me, it's a two and a half hour drive for Mike. It's at least was it two, hour 45, two hours. Uh, yeah, 90 an hour 45. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you're going to be there this weekend for uh, yeah. a special event. 
Oh yeah, very special event. Um, you know, as as uh, I've been told many a times in my life, I'm like an onion. I just have layers and layers to my uh, to my movie loving habits. So and you're very yeah. sweet. It's <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but yes, uh, as Dino mentioned, yeah, this weekend, really fun event coming up at the Mahoning Drive-In, uh, Dark Side of Disney. Yes, the vaults of the Disney castle have been opened to the Mahoning Drive-In, so um, they have their their paws on uh, just an endless amount of 35mm prints um, from their library, which, as anybody knows, is endlessly vast. But uh, yeah, they're and, uh, like, kicking... next to impossible for almost anybody to get at at this point. Yeah. Yeah, su- super rare. I mean, I, I can't stress that enough. I was just on um, their podcast, the Mahoning Drive-In radio um, show last night. That episode's posted now, um, and we were talking about that very thing. It's it's incredibly rare, so I really can't stress it enough um, for more people, you know, for people to come out to this show this weekend, Dark Side of Disney, where we're going to be screening um, two edgier, darker um, films from the Disney library, uh, Return to Oz from 1985 and The Watcher in the Woods from 1980. Uh, I'll be there both nights, Friday and Saturday, and I'll be um, giving some introductions to the films, hopefully some uh, film historical context and information uh, to go along uh, with your, you know, your traumatizing uh, that will childhood be the, memories. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That will be the exhaustive research. I think uh, anybody within listening distance, I forget listening distance, if you don't know about the Mahoning, you should know about the Mahoning, should go see Mike uh, this weekend, which is, uh, what's the, wait, wait, explain the date. Oh, yeah, the uh, the date this uh, Friday, it's uh, April 30th and May 1st. And big, big thing that just came out uh, last night, actually, on Friday, uh, children age 12 and under uh, get in for free on Friday. So if that's not a better reason to bring your tykes and traumatize them like you were in the 80s, I don't know what to say to you then. But yes, please come out to uh, the Mahoning Drive-In this Friday and Saturday for Dark Side of Disney. Again, Return to Oz and Watcher in the Woods in glorious 35mm. So Which is pretty awesome. Yep. Yeah. There's my plug for the day. Thank you. And good no, night. I want that's a look. <laughs> the fact that you're introducing those movies is, is fantastic and you should be telling everybody about it. Thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, we we want to just kind of shoot the shit a little bit today. But um, under the auspices of, like I said, I... Uh, I, well, I listen to NPR, I suppose. Uh, I listen to a little bit of music, far less than most people would think for somebody who handles and plays with records all day long. <laughs> but I pretty much just watch movies, uh, like as almost constantly. Should. Almost constantly. I actually, you know, I, I, I don't watch them as much while I'm at work, uh, even though we have them on all the time. Sure. Um, at work. I should, I, okay, I, I guess I should finally say it. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm working with, at uh, the Archive in Connecticut at this point, which is a, which is a um, affiliated branch of Vinegar Syndrome. So we are playing movies there uh, on, on two floors constantly. A cinematic um, wonderland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying not to, uh, not to find myself in a conflict of interest, but I, I'm not exactly <laughs> sure what that would be. Anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, I kept a list. Um, I'm, I'm see, Mike is the letterboxed guy. He's a uh, guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you got you got called out by what, what was it? Was it Pat Healy? You know, tried to yeah. kill you once. You got called out multiple times <laughs> on uh, seventy movies we saw in the seventies podcast and Crackpot Cinema because you keep um, uh, a letterboxed um, of ever of as many episodes as you can of the, uh, of those two podcasts, uh, 70 movies we saw in the seventies is still running, of course. Yeah. But, um, I'm not, I don't know. I, I, I got into this thing where like, 
Uh, You're hesitant. I understand. <laughs> no, I like there's 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 some you know quote unquote method to the madness. Uh, no, I, I just I don't like to keep track as much. You know, I don't I don't like to um, have the running list. I don't like to keep. I don't want. I don't like to count. I feel like. Um, uh, who was who was it? Was it May West? I think it was May West who said, mm-hmm. "Keep a diary, and one day the diary keeps you." Yeah. I always kind of like that. It's like I'd much rather just be a wash in movies than necessarily keep track of how many I watched and and whatever. But I did keep a a, a bit of a list of stuff in preparation for this episode. Uh, I think I told Mike, "Oh yeah, let's get, you know maybe like a dozen movies." And of course, yeah. I show up with like twenty five. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, right. Uh, right before we hit record, I was uh, I was prepared with my dozen, and uh, Dino decided, "Oh no, I'm doubling mine." So uh, yeah, I I did not apparently come as well prepared with my homework. <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, you know, it's uh, I, and I omitted stuff. It's not like I kept track of everything I watched. You know, yeah. um, uh, well, t- you tell me something. What um. I assume this is this is probably a bad assumption, but I assume people have like comfort comfort rewatches, things that they throw on when they're not like trying to engage themselves with something they've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something you do normally? Um, yeah, I mean, like that that obviously exists, and yeah, I mean, like like if I, if I'm pressed to answer something like that, yeah, sure. I mean, of course, we all have comfort films, but I, I don't think that there's typically films that I will. Um, resort to just because I'm not in the proper headspace to watch something brand new mm-hmm. um, more times than not, especially like on an average week, I'm pretty much engaging in something nightly um, that I've never seen before. I like that idea. I always like watching something new. Now, that being said, you know, some of my favorite movies, sure. Uh, you know, it's probably like annual watches. Um, some movies that I wouldn't even consider top 10. There's just certain times of the year that I'll watch them. Uh, you know, weird example. I think I've mentioned it before on the show. Uh, every November for the last several years, I end up watching Pixar's Ratatouille. Um, that's mm-hmm. just one. I mean, I've always liked Pixar, but that movie for some reason around that time, I guess it's like a warm thing. It, it you know, it, it, it surrounds food and Thanksgiving. I just thought that the pairing really complemented each other. And I've really kind of, uh, leaned on that the last few years. I really like re- uh, revisiting that film around November. But yeah, of course, some other favorites like, you know, Karate Kid and Back to the Future. I mean, you know, it's very hard for me to go a year, let alone two, not popping them in at least once during that year, you know? Yeah. I, I, so you do the seasonal thing. I, I, I definitely know other people who do that. Like I, um, I've never made it through um, uh, 1941. Oh. And a friend of mine, I, I, I'll give it another shot. It's fine. But um, it's, it's got a ter- such a terrible rep. Um, but, uh, you know, a friend of mine's like, hey, you got to watch it in December. And I'm like, if it's a movie I'm not into, I don't think it matters what month I watch it in. But, yeah. um, I, you know, I, I will say that I, that uh, one of the reasons I, I, I do watch a lot of movies is that I put them on um, sometimes in the background while I am working. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the reasons I'm not on Letterboxd, I'm not like doing that, is because my work is so much of my work is internet based anyway. So I'm I'm like looking at a screen, I'm working on a database constantly, yeah. and I don't necessarily want to do that for something that's not necessarily work. Um, but uh, but I do. Th- I, there's a lot of stuff that I just I mean that I just throw on. Like if I'm downstairs and I'm shipping um, uh, on that TV, I. I, I I have like a burned DVD-R copy of a Gumball Rally. 
which is one of my favorite <laughs> movies, period. Mm-hmm. And I could literally like put it on like in the background. I've I've watched it like three times in one week before. And I'm not really <laughs> I'm not watching it as much as it's on. That's yeah. the other thing. Like it's on. Like um I, sometimes it's comfort, sometimes it's just like low grade, something to have on. Like I could do that with the fog. The fog is one of my go-tos. Sure. Um, where I could I could even I could like I like the the fog enough. I could watch the whole thing and just start it over again and be happy. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, yeah, and and how are you for? Um, I, I watch. There's a lot of stuff I watch. I watch like there's there's movies I watch twice a month. I oh, once wow. I once went uh, before I was even like that quote into movies as whatever I am now, mm-hmm. uh, whatever kind of maniac I am now. Um, I once went like six months watching Smoking the Bandit like twice a week. It seemed to fulfill <laughs> some kind of emotional need. I don't necessarily know what it was, but uh, there's something kind of perfect about Smoking the Bandit. Um, I think uh, I think our good mutual friend Mark Nelson could probably attest to that as well. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He we uh, he and I once went to Alamo, um, Brooklyn, to see to see uh, Cannonball Run, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I think they played his trailer for for smoking the bandit uh, before oh, it which is pretty neat but uh, okay so tell me another thing um i was talking about this with my friend jim the other day um how are you about partial watches like oh, I, yeah. I i start movies all the time mm-hmm. and then i'm like okay i can't do this right now this is a unfortunately like i'm i'm i like this happens a lot with with movies that are, are only uh subtitled yeah. um like i have to like okay i'm doing something else or this i can't give it the attention it needs and I'll stop it. But there's movies where I'm like, okay, I made it like a certain ways through and then I stopped. And Mm. to me, that's like the same thing as like books. Like I can put a book down, put a bookmark in it. I can go back to a movie. How are you Mm. with that? Does that work for you? Um, Typically not. Uh, Mm. I I really, I really, when I watch a movie, I I really put the, the commitment in where I want to like see it through now, obviously like, you know, sometimes, you know, the Sandman gets the best of us and yep. sure there, there's many, many a nights where I've conked out, but like, I need to, I hate it. I really hate it. Cause I just feel like I haven't given it my, my strictest attention and I will finish it the following morning or something. But yeah, typically if I'm putting something on, it's like the intention is like start to finish. I really like to give it that, um, it's funny that you mentioned that being, you know, similar to like a book for you where you can pick it up and uh, put it down. That seems like so contrary to somebody like David Lynch, who re- like on his like films, he doesn't even allow chapter marks on the DVDs and Blu-rays because he specifically says it's not like a book. You're supposed to watch it from start to finish. And yeah. literally, like if you check out any of his DVDs or anything that that's like noticeably missing on uh, his menu. So it's interesting how people um, they're. Uh, how they consume cinema changes. Um, Obviously we're a little different on that, but yeah, like typically speaking, yeah, if I'm putting something on, yeah, the intention is to sit there and and get through it. But that being said, you know, to, to your point, if it's something like subtitled or if it's something um, rather epic, like an epic runtime and it's something that I've never seen yet. Yeah. Then that's like something that's even more calculated. It's like, Mm. nope, tonight is the night that, I watch Deer Hunter. You know what I mean? Right. Like the, the the schedule is cleared, and I'm not moving from this thing until the end credits. You know? Yeah, it's one of like like, like I have to admit I've gotten just because I I um I don't know just because of who I am I suppose how I work and what I do when I'm at home working um I can't I have to say I'm not I don't treat like movie watching at home incredibly sacred like mm-hmm. I I mean I I think I think a lot of people now 
a days will check their phone in the middle of a movie when they're at home. Uh, it's, but, uh, but it's, um, I'm usually doing something else and it is definitely one of those things where I miss the, I miss the cinema for this reason. Cause, uh, I'd rather be forced in some cases to give my full attention to the movie when I'm sitting in a theater. Um, and, uh, I'm a little bit, I'm a lot looser than that uh, at home, but, um, mm-hmm. but I try to be selective about it. I try to be, you know, like, like, um, the movie I the movie I just turned off like an hour ago is a comfort movie for me that I only found out about in the past two three years, mm-hmm. and it's already like a movie that I watch. I mean, I I don't know if I counted, I might watch it ten times a year, eight times a year at this wow. point. Uh, and it, it's it's the the Late Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, I think it's a it's an archive, maybe a Warner archive disc. I, if not Warner, it's one of the maybe Fox archive. Um, but Lily Tomlin, Art Carney movie, uh, mm-hmm. because I was just, uh, re-listening to, um, uh, the Bill Macy, uh, Gilbert Gottfried podcast episodes, mm-hmm. uh, which are fantastic and absolutely hilarious. Um, they include lines like I'm 95 motherfucker, you know, cause he was 95 <laughs> years old, uh, yeah. the last time, you know, um, but, uh, but he, he's Bill Macy, not William H. Macy, Bill Macy, um, mm-hmm. probably best known for Maud. He was uh, B. Arthur's Maud's uh, character, Maud's husband on Maud, uh, the TV show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that actor, but anyway, he's he's in the Late Show also, and it's um, it's a comic noir uh, from the late seventies that's like riffing off of old Hollywood, and it's got great like ensemble cast, and it's just it's one of those like I, it was one of those watches where I'm like I watched it for the first time, and it was. Oh, this movie makes me feel warm, and and it already has like a certain nostalgia to it. It just kind of clicked fast, yeah, and uh, easy to watch. E- Eugene Roche is in it, uh, who is a big um, TV actor. You'd recognize him from a lot of uh, TV stuff from the seventies and eighties. Um, yeah, so that was that. That was like the last thing, literally, I watched. Like again, I just finished it like an hour ago, and I it's a movie I know so well that it's like okay, it's a thing that's on, and and it's it's almost like like I said, a comfort movie, something that eases me, mm-hmm. um, while I I was doing other stuff. So isn't that great too? I mean, you you mentioned that you just discovered a film like that. What, what was it? Three years ago? Three four years ago? You said something like that. Yeah. Isn't and that I, just like typical? I think like it's from seventy-seven. Yeah, seventy-seven. So, I like, I so. mean, isn't that just like great? I mean, that that's what's so wonderful about um, the hunt and the discovery of cinema is like you you truly don't know what you're gonna get with each new film that you take a chance on. You know, it could be the biggest piece of shit ever, or it could become you know your new favorite comfort movie. I think that one of the more recent things um, that struck a chord for me as you know as similar uh for you t- uh, to the late show was probably um once upon a time in hollywood i think from the mm-hmm. second i saw that film i i mean you know you, you kind of hook me almost immediately when you're making a movie about movies that's like are a you wearing movie. a are you wearing a fucking t-shirt for this movie right now yeah yeah you got me <laughs> <laughs> is, is this is it like the movie's been out they don't need to, they don't need the publicity anymore no you know? no they no they don't this is <laughs> this this is just me and mind you i'm actually very upset about this shirt because i i do really like it this is not like a licensed shirt mind you i got caught up in the art design my of goodness this. yeah <laughs> and, this, and this folks is where the podcast takes a nefarious turn into crime Go on. Dun, dun, dun. so it's a I blue got... leg shirt 
Yeah, it's a bootleg shirt, and I got really wrapped into the art design of it because, as you can see, at least from Dino's perspective, it's it's colorful and and it's cool. It's it's and, the it, it's it's um uh, it's the Rick Dalton as Jack Cahill in Bounty Law graphic where he's jumping over the rail of the uh of the truck with a with a shotgun. Yeah, right. And I got as clearly you have erroneously gotten excited about it, just as I did. I bought it, and then the second I got it in the mail and ripped open the package, it hit me in a new light. I said, "This is wrong." Because this is, it's, not... is that from, is that from his FBI episode? It's from his FBI episode, correct? Oh, that's fine. That's good. You know, whatever. It could be a lot worse. Like I went to I went to college the, the first time. I went to college uh, in '95, and um, two of the movies that I'm like. I don't know. Like I talk about losing listeners. Um, two of the movies that I that that I've like been beat that I've been beat to hell because I went to school and I lived in dorms at this period of time for me are Braveheart and Goodfellas um, because people played. The, I mean Friday to a lesser degree, but I can still watch Friday. Um, I could probably watch Goodfellas. It's just it's 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 there's other issues there. Um, oh, we'll talk but, about that. Yeah, I'm into that. Uh, but Goodfellas is uh, like it was a big enough movie. I always remember this. Like, you know, speaking of bootlegs, speaking of of uh, merchandise that's not official, you know, it's, it's kind of a tradition that people show up with selling posters on campuses. Yeah. I've actually had a hand in this, and those posters, you know, varying size posters, small posters for dorm rooms that people also, you know, buy for their like, you know, cubicles at work. Those are often not official posters, but there was a poster that was popular at SUNY Albany in, uh, <laughs> in like, you know, '95 through uh, '98 was when I was there. Um, before I dropped out, uh, there was a there was a Goodfellas poster that was popular that misspelled Henry Hill on it. Oh. It, said, it said Herdry Hill, and I I would walk into motherfuckers like like dorm rooms, and it's like Herdry Hill, huh? You're a big Goodfellas fan, and nobody ever saw it. I'm the only one who sees it, and oh I'm like, my gosh. it's like it doesn't matter. It's like it doesn't matter that they misspelled like like it was it was glaring. It was like yeah. you know yeah. it wasn't like, that's all you can see when you walk into that dorm room. <laughs> but it's like it's like okay, cool. I'm glad that guy got your like 10, 15, 20 bucks for that poster. Um, and you know, you know, now, right. you know, in, in my life now, I, I appreciate that level of vending and how hard it is to, 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 to sell shit to college kids. Right. But, um, but it was just like, that's how big it was it, that, that nobody minded like a poster that was clearly misspelled. It was so yeah. obviously like not real that they didn't even spell the character's name. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, they just, they just needed it on their wall for their, for that cred, you know, <laughs> I think it may, maybe, maybe the same poster misspelled the Yoda also. Oh, yeah you know stuff like that um (laughs) but yeah you know that's easy to say i think about um uh about hollywood about uh the the latest tarantino movie um because that movie's just designed for you to live in it that like it's like the uh, people complain about the plot of that um and it's like Really? Yeah, maybe I'm just yeah. maybe I'm just very I, maybe I have a lot of uh, tunnel vision when it comes to that film because I think I well, think in it's certain circles. I don't know if I, I maybe maybe it's do, definitely doing something different. But uh, you know, in some of the circles that we hang out in, you, you kind of can't cross Tarantino. But then again, some people I know loathe the guy. Like mm-hmm. they, they won't give him a break for anything. Right. Um. But that's what happens when you hang out with too many movie people um but uh no i i just the thing that i love about that some people complain about that movie um in terms of like it, it takes too long it, it like there's stretches where things aren't really happening it's too it's too drawn out and, mm-hmm. and to me it's like 
the whole concept of, of his movies are all about glorifying the world that cinema creates and what that world can do. Yeah. Um, uh, be it like something completely ridiculous and ahistorical, like killing Adolf Hitler. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that movie is just designed for you to like kind of climb into and live in that time. Like yeah. that's that to me is, you know, the, the idea of that feeling like a comfort movie makes total sense. It's I feel like it's designed to be a comfort movie to, to like his childhood, to like the idea of to take place in 68, I think. 69. Yeah, just is the idea of like this is, you know, the this is our construction of what we think or what he thinks 1969 is and and, and we get to live in it, you know, yeah. even even as viewers. So, yeah, yeah I don't know. That that was one that like I, I mean a more recent watch definitely but I mean that film just immediately struck a chord with me. I saw it opening night on thirty five millimeter. I caught it again digitally. Um, when I bought it on four K, I watched it the night I got it, and then the following day I watched it again. I I think the first year it was released from its theatrical release to home video. I think in that calendar year I watched it eight or nine times, and it's like it, it's still a day. It's like a monthly struggle for me, where like to when not I'm watch try- it or to, just to, the- to not watch it. Yeah, or, like or I'm you're, old- going, or you're going through withdrawal. Is that? Yeah, yeah, it's literally a monthly question that I ask myself when I'm in my movie room trying to watch something, and I'm like, "Is it time to watch that again?" No, 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 no. I get like, you know, it's it's always on there. Like, I could watch these, or I could watch Hollywood again. You know. Speaking of the '90s, it reminds me of of this 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 guy I lived with. Um, really, you know, really good guy. Uh, um, uh, ex marine. Uh, was uh, but he uh. He was so infatuated. These are we were we were using videotapes at this point. Uh, he was so infatuated and just so like singularly focused mm-hmm. um, on the Big Lebowski, and this is sir two thousand two thousand one ish around there I think uh, maybe two thousand two. He was so focused on the Big Lebowski he kept trying to like watch other movies and he'd make it ten minutes and be and be like this is in Massachusetts yeah it's a mass accent so he'd be like. <laughs> Nah, nah, no, nah, it's just, it's not, and he would, he would have the tape on top of the VCR, take out whatever was there, and put Lebowski back in, because it wasn't doing for him what that movie did. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so. That's, that's, that is just how cinema, you know, kind of tears at us sometimes, and I love it, that's, that, that's really yeah. the good and the bad of it, you know, it's just, uh, there's just certain movies you can quit, um, and clearly some the late show. Movies, some people see movies once, like, um. I don't, I mean, I could, there's plenty of movies I've only seen once and I'm fine with that. But like, mm-hmm. if a movie is really valuable to me, it's it's kind of like a book. Like you have to see it twice. You're not going to see everything or comprehend it, even a, a good piece of it under one uh, viewing, in my opinion. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, okay. So enough about re- repeat watches. Um, mm-hmm. I, did, I did just watch The Late Show. So I guess that's one for me. You want to just go back and forth? <laughs> sure. <laughs> We, yeah, we could just have like uh, endless amounts of uh, rewatches, but yeah, like I mean, honestly, well, like, I mean, I, I meant back and forth on like our list. I, I, I sort of, oh, I sort oh, yeah. of, I sort of threw that on there just as like that literally was the thing I turned off an hour ago. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that's fine. I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna backtrack to, I guess the. The of the thirteen that I have, I'm gonna backtrack it to, um, like the, 
the oldest one. Uh, and the first one is the Magnificent Ambersons, actually. Um, 1942, it's uh, Orson Welles' sophomore effort after Citizen Kane, of course. Um, this film, uh, I watched the Criterion Blu-ray um, you know, I'm a, in addition to, you know, countless other things when it comes to cinema, I'm a big lover of classic Hollywood stuff. So in between, you know, the the stuff that we're constantly consuming on IE movies, I'm always kind of jumping back and forth between stuff of this fair to more traditional classic Hollywood stuff. And The Magnificent Ambersons um, was one that I've just for whatever reason has evaded me. So I wanted to change that. Uh, this is a film that's a far cry from what Wells initially initially intended um thanks to a lot of studio meddling and you know previously you know essential footage just simply being lost to time but interestingly enough tcm is apparently spearheading um a documentary project um mm. to uh i think um travel to brazil or some south american country to hopefully uncover that lost footage and restore the magnificent ambersons to as close to wells's original vision as possible so that sounds fascinating um but yeah the uh the magnificent ambersons um kind of in a similar um way uh to once upon a time in hollywood it kind of conveys a nostalgia for a certain uh time and uh, place and history. Um, it's turn of the century. Um, it deals with uh, family values with this real, like utmost sincerity that I really appreciated. Uh, there's themes of how selfishness and un unreciprocated love plague an affluent family as society approaches a, a new and better tomorrow, hopefully. Um, you know, the film, it, it may seem uh, at times uneven, obviously, because it, it's not initially what Wells intended. It's about 88 minutes, and um, I think Wells intended it to be, you know, uh, two hours and 10 minutes, two hours and 15, somewhere in and around oh, there. I see. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, but I think that uh, the many characters that populate it strike a really effective chord. So, yeah, I, I really dug it in again, kind of a, in a similar way to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and um, Meet Me in St. Louis, which is mm -hmm. arguably my favorite Judy Garland film. Very similar kind of turn of the century um, nostalgia in all these films. So, yeah, I, I dug it for all of its, um, you know, imper imperfectness, um, but it's great and I, I would recommend it. Sounds good. Hmm. I didn't, you fine, I did, sir. I didn't even uh, think about. Uh, I didn't even think about um, going by by years. Uh, yeah. So uh, oh, I'm jumping all around. Just wait. <laughs> oh, I did. I, I will jump with you. Uh, you know, I just watched um, was clean and sober for the first time on a on an original videotape. Oh uh, yeah, you were telling me about this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, clean and sober is interesting because it's um. It's a Michael Keaton vehicle, mm -hmm. uh, but with uh, Kathy Baker and um, and uh, and Morgan Freeman, and ah. it, it's it's the is it the next year? It's the next year, or maybe is it eighty nine? It's either eighty eight or eighty nine. Right after, you know, um, the squeeze, the squeeze, and you know, and and uh, of course. Um, Street smart, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, it, I, I was really, I was blown away. I really, actually, just, I actually watched again. Let me just say, I watched it twice. Um, it's a recovery movie, you know. It's about, uh, it's about um, Michael Douglas, Michael Douglas, Michael Keaton, whose real name His is legal Michael, name. Douglas, <laughs> Michael Douglas. That's right. Um, what's the name of the town he's from? Coralopolis, which oh. just, just looking at the at that 
town name is interesting, but it's it's outside of Pittsburgh. Um, yeah, he's he basically plays this uh, this real estate guy who's um, clearly uh, dealing with addictions and fucking his life up, and and basically to hide from the people he owes money to, he goes to recovery, and then of course recovery overcomes him and so forth. Um, really strong movie, amazing. I mean, they're all they're all good, but uh, amazing performance by by Emmett Walsh in it. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, yeah, he's uh, it, it's it's up. We were just talking about uh, eight million ways to die. It's up there for me with eight million ways to die in terms of like, uh, in terms of like, kind of accurately, you know, per, kind of accurately dealing with like recovery and alcoholism and the twelve steps in a movie that's not like really silly. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was really impressed with it. it, it it's it's um. It's uh, it's definitely a keeper for me. Uh, definitely one I remember when it came out, but I never saw it. And it's um, definitely you know a late '80s drama with some pretty strong performances in it. I-, I think Morgan Freeman could be in it more. Kathy Baker, I think, is much better in that than she was in uh, Street Smart, but uh, had some issues with, with Street Smart. I'm just gonna mention quickly another one because uh, talk about like you know putting your thumb putting your thumb in the book. Um, I've been I've wanted to see figures in a landscape, which I think is a Joseph Losey movie for a while. That's one I just started mm-hmm. and like had to stop. I think I, I think I had to go to sleep, actually. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I haven't gone back to it. So that's that's part of the reason I have a list of like 25 things. There you but go. Uh, yeah, figures in a landscape is maybe I'll get to that tonight or what have you. So. Your turn. Interesting. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that. Well, thanks for reminding me about clean and sober. Yeah, that's another um, uh late 80s keaton vehicle that has evaded me so that that's definitely oh, jump I, in. I really really recommend it jump into the top of my watch list certainly uh well next one for me was um uh, a fun revisit a little bit of a homework assignment for my other podcast the monster rally podcast uh where we dish about uh universal monster films uh but yeah we uh i revisited uh 1939 son of frankenstein uh which is the third installment of the franchise which at least in my opinion maintains uh much of the visual vocabulary established by james whale uh you had basil rathbone really delivering the goods as the titular uh scientist who is torn between destroying the creature and salvaging his father's legacy um really above all uh son of frankenstein really stands apart as um it's a wonderful wonderful vehicle for bella lugosi he absolutely steals the show as um igor it's definitely one of his best if not his best performance and really one of the few productions that saw him outshining karloff which Mm. was very rare they did countless films together and they're both great together but karloff almost always steals the show uh whether it was you know the black cat or, or something like that but son of frankenstein is is one of the those notable exceptions um in that company but yeah that's a great one really continues it really solid um third installment to arguably universal's best monster franchise i think mm. but that i guess that's debatable you're making me think that uh i i, I guess i guess that you know the, the, this is my association i i have to rewatch ed wood it's been a while but as soon as uh. i hear the name bella lugosi uh i always think of um i always think of martin landau you know, you know <laughs> now no one gives two fucks for bella I, <laughs> no one know, gives two fucks for i i it always pops into my head i literally i mean ed wood is in my top 10 
favorite mm. films. I, I, I got to meet Martin Landau the year before he died, actually. Oh, that's great. And he signed my one-sheet poster. Um, yeah, that that is a film um, that I will proudly say and confidently say that I could probably quote the entire movie to Good. you from Good. start to finish. Just absolutely adore it. It's Tim Burton's best film, not even close. Yeah, yeah, and it's also you know Karaszewski and Alexander, yeah, um, which means which means a, a great deal. Uh, mm-hmm. You know the guys who wrote Problem Child, um, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> yes, do not never sleep on the Problem Child films. Never, I, I, you know, I, I, Gilbert Godfrey talks about them enough. I should probably actually watch them. They're uh, so much fun. I think you'll really appreciate them. John Ritter is a is a comedic gem in them. I am a big John Ritter fan. Um, I won't. I won't deny that. Um, all right. Um, let's see. Oh yeah, you know, talk about assignments. There's a couple of things I, you know, I recently checked out. Um, was recommended to me a Time to Die, which actually mm-hmm. I should figure out what. What you, I want to say it's early '80s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's. Uh, I think it's. I don't know if it's on disc at all. Uh, but I've, I've watched that on, on tape. It's actually uh, a Matt Simber movie. Oh. It's it's weird. I think it's Matt Simber and Tom Signorelli. It's wow. it, 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 it's it's a it's one of those um Matt Simber of uh Lady Coco? Yeah. Ah, yeah. okay. Simber, nice. Matt Simber the guy who invented the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. Ah. Uh, and who I mean what a crazy life this guy had. Uh he yeah. the Matt Simber who was married to Jane Mansfield? Oh, wow. If I'm not mistaken. Have we just have we just stumbled upon a future I eat movies um, person of interest? I think <laughs> well, he, did, he did make Candy Tangerine Man. Yes, um, great movie. But um, I, I want to say uh, I want to say that was him. Yeah, um, A Time to Die was recommended to me. Um, yeah, uh, Matt Simber is one of those like you know I feel like half the time you 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 you, you dig up somebody's. Uh, um, you dig up somebody's name, um, you know, and uh, you find their real name in Hollywood. It's usually like, um, it's usually, you know, a Jewish name, but he's, he's in the, uh, Dean Martin category. Uh, Matt Simber's real name is Matteo Ottaviano. So oh, Italian guy, but he, um, yeah. Uh, you know, black, the black six lady Coco, lady candy tangerine, man, which is, I think is definitely the best of all of them. Um, did he, he do he- the wish that came from the sea. He did. Uh, the thing is, yeah, eighty-two. Um, a time to die is based on a Mario Puzo story. Okay. Oh, wow. And Rex Harrison is in it. Um, and uh, you know, it was decent. It, it, it's um, it's one of those World War II, like you know, go back to the scene of the crime, try to try to um, you know, exact revenge. Uh, but the um. So trying to look it up quickly, but the uh, yeah he made he, he has a bunch of stuff like uh, he made white coders he and she, Africanus sexualis, uh, Lady Coco Gemini affair I haven't seen. Oh, um, I have that. Yeah. Well, he has a he has a bona fide lost movie. It's on the Temple of Schlock in danger list called Alias Big Cherry, which I think is some kind of bizarre mob movie. <laughs> um, he made Hundra. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, in the late, in the mid, mid late eighties, he invented glow, but wow. he, um, yeah. And, uh, what was the, what, oh yeah. Single room furnished his first movie. His first movie was Jane Mans is with Jane Mansfield from 66. It's actually very good, oh, but, wow. uh, time to die was, you know, it was decent. It was, um, 
it was very of its time, you know. Uh, it reminded me of movies like, um, uh, well, there's so many of like the the mid late '70s that are kind of still looking at at World War II, like the um, oh Christ, what's the uh, like the follow up to um, Guns of Navarone, mm-hmm. um, uh, Force Ten from Navarone, I think, yeah, uh, and so forth. Uh, you know, solid. But uh, not not totally memorable. Uh, just, it, but it was it was interesting. It was interesting. Um, it was interesting cast uh, for uh, for that movie. At time to die, you know, worth looking at. I would say I was not blown away by it, but um, it's oh yeah yeah the lead the the cast is worth it for sure. Um, uh, Edward Albert, Eddie Albert's son. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rod Taylor is in it, Ooh. and I, I love all Rod Taylor. Uh, he doesn't sure. have that much to do in it. Uh, Ralph Valone is in it. He plays an Italian who um, conspired with the Nazis. Basically, uh, Edward Albert's like um, Edward Albert's wife and I think kid were killed by the Nazis, and uh, you know then you flash forward ten years and he he basically ha- he basically decides to go out you know he has a vendetta and he decides to hunt down all the nazis who were involved mm-hmm. um but the problem is it's the post war period and um one of the guys involved is potentially going to become even though he he's he's supposed to be reformed or politically benign at this point mm-hmm. he's supposed to become um a leader a political leader so now, like the Rod Taylor character is trying to stop Edward Albert, even though he agrees with him, and it's you know yeah. it's a conflicted thing. And sure, it's, sure. It's interesting, interesting to see like a, a you know a lesser Mario Puzo story, um, but that's a time to die. So interesting, interesting. A time to die. I'm gonna have to seek that one out as well. Uh, well, next one for me, me kind of goes back. Um, the last drive-in with Joe Bob Briggs uh, kicked off their third season. Uh, Two weeks ago, I think. Um, so I tuned in because I had been uh, kind of lacking on uh, keeping up with the episode. So I tuned in, and um, the first uh, offering of the night was 1980s Mother's Day. Um, ah. Yes, uh, one of the few tolerable offerings from Trauma, I would say. I think, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think me and you are definitely not. Did they uh, make it, or, did, or was it a pickup for them? Uh, no, they actually made it. Yeah, it's, uh, oh, wow. it's um, Lloyd's brother directed it. Yeah, it was like wow. a full-on family affair for them. But yeah, uh, definitely one of the few tolerable offerings from Trauma. I know that me and you are both not what you would consider the the Trauma fan base. And if I may, uh, you know, it seems to be a thing with Trauma. May, where, where, <laughs> there seems to be a thing with Trauma where I think people go through um, a stage in their life with trauma, I guess maybe when you're younger and you just want to get your hands on everything. That's um, the goriest stuff that you can find. And then you kind of gravitate at one point to trauma. That's just like the silliest of the silly. I never went through that. I, I just, I never went through a trauma phase. I, I mean, I I've seen, um, I think the greater majority of what you would quote unquote call the the best offerings from them, mm. you know, I'm singling out the Toxic Avenger, which I sure. think is quite fun. A uh, class of Newcomb High, another one that I think is is decently fun. Um, but that's about it. Uh, after that, I, I really yeah. I, I I didn't see much um, reason to stick around for the rest of the party that apparently still continues to this day. But I digress. Uh, but yeah, Mother's Day um, is again one of the few. Um, offerings um, that I, I tolerate. I think that it's pretty fun. Uh, came out in 1980, the same year as Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. Shot 
uh, basically on the same lake say, uh, that uh, was Crystal Lake, just on the other side of where Friday the 13th was filming. In Jersey? Enough. In Jersey, South, yeah, South yeah. South Jersey, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a good old uh, Garden State slasher. Um, we like you know, that. Yeah, Mother's Day, you know, it's not exactly carving out new ground, but, you know, it has its moments as Pine Barren hillbillies target a trio of uh, college pals. Um, probably the best thing going for it uh, amongst all of its silliness and uh, violence, it's arguably the only slasher that finds its old hag of a psycho character meeting her demise via inflatable boobs. So I guess that's a plus. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, um, not, uh, not like a stone cold classic of, um, you know, the golden slasher age, but, uh, definitely one that's fun. It, it had been quite a few years since I had revisited it. And, uh, Definitely, you know, with Joe Bob's uh, commentary, I believe he had, he had Eli Roth on, who's uh, he he hails Mother's Day as one of his favorite films. So it it actually added an interesting discussion, um, having them talk about it in between um, the breaks. But uh, yeah, it was it was fun to revisit. But again, nothing uh, nothing that I would uh, go out of my way to say it's in like the top ten of the the greatest slashers ever made. Certainly not. I would happily put Eli Roth in the same drawer as Troma, so that kind of makes sense. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. He 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 does have good taste in movies he likes, and you know, yeah, I off. like listening to him. I, I mean, I've I've enjoyed um, some of his movies. I really liked his most recent one, um, "The House with a Clock in Its Walls." Uh, it's a real throwback. I've never and heard that title before. Yeah, <laughs> I've never, it's never heard of yeah, it. Okay. It, Weirdly enough, it's it's an Amblin film and it's a real throwback to, um, you know, like earlier, darker uh, children's Amblin films uh, it had Kate Blanchett and Jack Black in it. But it's really fun, um, mm. definitely for a younger um, audience, but uh, one that I think like older audiences can appreciate. But, yeah, that was a that was a pretty big studio picture for him. Interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Yeah, I tried a couple times and he just seems to be the the Dane Cook of horror as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. And I was just like, this guy's he's too broy for me. Um, <laughs> and I, I even saw his death wish in the theater, uh, but um, wow. stunningly mediocre movie. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyhow. Um, all right. Where else are we going to go? Uh, you know, I found myself looking. I have Mother's Day on tape and I have to rewatch it. Um since you reminded me, but uh, I I have problems with physical media. I'll, mm. I'll admit I'll admit that the first thing the first step is admitting, right? Sure, uh, <laughs> good for you. And uh, yeah, so like I occasionally like start looking for a movie because I'm like I need to see that and I need to find a copy of that. I don't have it, and and you know what of course happens. I realize that somewhere I do have a tape copy of it. Sure. <laughs> You know, speaking of of Landau, I still have a copy. Uh, you asked me to find you a copy of uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors. Yes. Um, in which Landau is unbelievably good. Uh, I got to host that once um, as a memorial uh, right after Land- Martin Landau died. But, um, you know, I was looking for other Woody stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was looking around the store the other day and I'm like, yeah, you know, there's like nothing here but Crimes and Misdemeanors. It's kind of weird. And, yeah. and I'm like, thinking about a couple of movies that I heard about, and I realized I have them. Uh, mm-hmm. Key videotape. Yeah. Key video, you know, key video in the eighties did a, a Woody Allen series. And, uh, and I think I did a house clean out once. I, I got this whole classical record collection out of the basement of a mansion mm-hmm. that had like 
its own like mini elevator yeah and uh ended up with like a, a whole load of videotapes as well from there and uh yeah i watched love and death for the first time um, oh what'd you think of it i liked it i liked mm-hmm. it you know it like i have these weird memories of seeing like i told in my mind like i remember seeing sleeper and um uh, oh my god sleeper and bananas uh-huh. uh on tv those were on tv a lot when I was a kid and in my mind, I've mixed up the two movies, but it kind of, you know, just the tone of like that, you know, that era, uh, Woody, um, and how it's, you know, it, it, I, I like the whole Russian thing in it. Like, you know, he's supposed to be right. Everyone's supposed to be Russian in it, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was pretty enjoyable. Um, and I, and I definitely have like another one of those, uh, key video Woody Allen series tapes to go through. Um, oh, cool. I, I don't know his stuff as, as well as I should, to be honest. Um, I've been slowly, I mean, we've, we've talked about this, but I've been slowly going through, um, his stuff. Cause I mean, he, he's probably the most, um, quite unlike any other American filmmaker. I mean, the man has literally like made a film almost every year since the 1970s. So, I mean, his, his filmography is really vast. So I've been slowly going through all of them from take the money and run. And I believe, uh, I believe I'm up to crimes and misdemeanors, which is my holdup. I still need to get that copy from you. Well, you so, told yeah. me not. To, I, I would. I would be over there now, but you, yes, you know, <laughs> there are other issues. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm sure that you know. I did see um, Match Point, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I, I thought that was pretty good. But I'm sure there's. Ton- I, I, I get the impression there's lots and lots of his movies that um, I don't necessarily need to see. You know, it's not like everyone is is Annie Hall, of course. No. Um, Have you seen The Purple Rose of Cairo? I have never seen that. That is my favorite Woody Allen film mm. and one that I did see recently because a, a few of them were actually still on HBO Max. Um, Broadway Danny Rose. Broadway Danny Rose. Yeah, really another, good. One, another one I still need to get to. Yeah, that, I, I, think you'd, I think you'd really appreciate both. All right, your turn. Um, next one, uh, we actually have a, a double th- um, two that kind of tie in back to back because I was a... Uh, one was a, a big revisit because um, I was kind of going down the Scorsese, Scorsese rabbit hole um, trying to cross off um, the few feature films of his that I haven't seen. His documentary work um, is another story. Um, I, that's a whole other, you know, uh, uh, bucket of worms that I need to start going into. But as far as his feature films, I've pretty much crossed all of them off. Uh, but the first one that I uh, revisited uh, was The Wolf of Wall Street from 2013. Just been hankering um, for that one to, to revisit that one. Uh, in in my opinion, it's one of Scorsese's very best films. Um, and it, it's the film that should have uh, netted to DiCaprio and Oscar, uh, not The Revenant. He's great in The Revenant, but I, I sincerely and deeply felt like The Wolf of Wall Street was it, that was his year to to win his first Oscar. Um, I think he's great in it. Um, the film is cinematic debauchery incarnate. <laughs> um, this, yeah. you know, it's a uh, you know this anarchic lifestyle of these stockbroking swindlers depicted. It, it, it's like watching um, it's like watching a dynamite stick go kaboom as drool runs down your mouth. That that is how I would <laughs> describe you know, a friend, the Wolf a, of Wall Street. A friend of mine once described a certain um, a certain uh, how do I put this you know benignly a certain act of vandalism as it's like losing your virginity on heroin. <laughs> you know it's a bad idea, but you're probably gonna do it again. I thought yeah. that you know, 
to outside of the the scene, one of the scenes I think everybody quotes is is or talks about is is the whole you know he's on Quaaludes and he drives the car and he thinks he didn't hit anything scene. Yeah. But to yeah. me, the one thing I always remember about Wolf of Wall Street, which you know talk about like a movie embraced by bros, um, is uh, is the scene where he's uh, he's. Um, He's got the dominatrix hitting him, and yeah. he's just yelling "owie, owie, owie!" Yeah, that's I kind of that's one of those scenes. Like, um, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, uh, what is it? Uh, the park is mine. One yeah. of maybe, maybe Lee Jones. yeah, maybe the strangest Tommy Lee Jones movie. Yeah. Um, which 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 clearly made sense for like I don't know six months or two years period of time. Now it's like okay, so you're a terrorist, great, yeah. but. <laughs> One of my favorite scenes in that whole movie is that, you know, he's like forcing uh, the Helen Shaver character to mm-hmm. um, to like change what she's wearing for her own safety. And he just screams in, in Tommy Lee Jones style. He just screams, get naked at her. And it's like, I kind of wish that line was in every single Tommy Lee Jones movie. Just him yelling, get naked. Like, like in, you know, in The Fugitive, you know, like get naked. But the... Um, the, uh, yeah, I think I think it, it could be said every every Leonardo DiCaprio performance could include you know could include him getting beaten and screaming owie owie owie. I yeah. think that could that could liven up every single one of his movies. I would I would certainly support that. Um, is this what the internet is for? You know. So. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, the Scorsese filmography is one that is is obviously revered. I mean, I mean, he's a he's a living master of his craft, and yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm old school in the fact that you know what what the kids today call event pictures is like a Marvel film, you know, from the MCU, and I like those movies. I I enjoy the Marvel films and stuff like that. But to me, an event. Film film like uh, i don't know if you watched the oscars this past week but but one of the but one of the the real thrills happened on the commercial break it it was the the trailer debut of spielberg's west side story and i was like yes like uh, that's like a a spiel a new spielberg film a new zemeckis film a new scorsese like that those are event pictures for me i had no idea that i had no idea that was even happening okay yeah yeah spielberg is uh is remaking west side story but it looks really good you would think like that's some that's some uh untouchable ground um as far as musicals go but i you know in in the minute and 30 seconds or so that we got i i really like the visual tone and approach that he's taking with it it's his first musical so i'm very excited as long as as long as he makes sure to maintain the tradition of of using iodine to uh to make the porter the non-puerto rican looking actors look quote more puerto rican it's okay with me um (laughs) that was said sarcastically folks all right so so um interesting yeah do i do i have any dicaprio on this list i don't think so i i Um, mean like did you what what do you think of wolf of wall street because i i was i I, uh, I saw it once um you know i understand that it's a study of it's a study of gratuitous uh you know and and like you said debauched behavior um, but not in a glamorizing sense. You hit the nail on the head when you said it's a it's a film very much in, embraced by like a dude bro demographic. But I I think that I think that's... I mean but 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 kind of like Goodfellas was mm-hmm. it still is um, yeah. But like you know it's it, it, sometimes it's it's that becomes an exercise in people missing the point. Yeah, it's exactly um, what I was saying. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like there there's a lot going on in that film where. 
you know, some audience members might just look at it as like a three hour party and like, whoa, right. it's so crazy. And it's like, yep. no, the, the, it, it, it's beyond crazy. It, it, it like teeters into like mindlessly, dangerously offensive, but it's also like unstoppably addicting. Mm. I guess as a viewer, that's what I take from it. It's just, you know, there there's a there's a sheen to this picture that, yeah, it's like. It's this nonstop party, but there's a real danger to it. And I think if you're if you're if you're digesting it properly, there's nothing glamorous about it. You know what I mean? There's really nothing glamorous about it in the way that they treat people, mm. people within their own office, too. I think, right. you know, Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker, his uh, editor, they talk specifically about this scene where he offers up uh, DiCaprio's character offers up about $10,000 to a woman in their office if she'll uh, have her head shaved. And you can right. like see this look in her face where she's like not really okay with this, but she's going along with it because it's real hard money. Mm -hmm. um, and it's moments, it's like these moments like that where like people are just so caught up in this like wave of all of these like chauvinists in their party and you see like moments like that. It's like, yeah, this is like, this toxic environment like this is where it's affecting so that's the brilliance of scorsese that i just eat up i can no, I, I can see that i was just talking um uh i was just talking about um bringing out the dead the other day mm. and, and uh uh it, the idea was brought to me i've only seen it once uh the idea was put to me that it's kind of like it has a it has a connection to um after hours in terms of that like deliriousness and um I think it's a nice bridge between after hours and taxi driver. I, I see that right. sort of like in their own sort of like uh, unofficial trilogy in a weird way. No, they're New York movies. You know, they're about a certain crazy, a certain madness of being stuck in, in the city and the city being this, uh, this ride you can't get off of. Um, I, you know, I only, I only saw Wolf of Wall Street once. Uh, mm. I should, you know, I, I suppose I could go back to it. Uh, I, I don't know. It, there's, um, I can see that being a thing. I, I don't know. I just, yeah, I'll give it another shot, I suppose. Yeah. Um, we'll discuss. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll discuss. Uh, Over to you. Let's see. Um, I rewatched Who's the Man recently. A friend of mine uh, requested that uh, that uh, we rewatch that. That's another comfort movie for me. Um mm -hmm. I think that's uh, Ted Demi's first movie, straight out of MTV. It's uh, very much an MTV movie with Ed Lover and Dr. Dre, if you're not familiar with it. It's a absolutely, completely fun, cameo-laden, if you like, uh, if you like uh, early 90s rap. There's mm -hmm. more cameos in it than you can actually count. Uh, uh -huh. Definitely more than there are in, in you know, listed in the... Uh, in the credits uh you know it's a fun goofy movie um and, and it's interesting because it has a little bit written into it about how ed lover and dr dre the real ed lover dr dre um actually like other movies like yeah. that the, 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 there's uh yeah the, they played the, the two worst barbers in harlem okay and uh they um and they work for um a character played by jim moody Jim Moody is a uh, is a uh, acting teacher now, but he's popped up in a bunch of great movies. He's one of the uh, guards in uh, Bad Boys, the uh, uh -huh. the the, the uh, Sean Penn Bad Boys. Yeah, um, he plays the guy who owns the pizza place in The Last Dragon. Um, oh, okay. But, um, uh, Daddy Green's Pizza, directed your pizza to Daddy Green's Pizza. Um, <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah, so like there's there's actually a point where like um you know they confront like the bad guy. Okay, so basically Jim Moody runs the barbershop. There's a plot to steal the barbershop because they're doing developing in Harlem. Um Richard Bright plays like one of the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Uh Baja Jola also plays one of the bad guys who you'd recognize from Penitentiary. He's half sure. dead for Penitentiary. Yeah. Great, great, great actor. He's also a uh, pretty memorable scene in uh, The Last Boy Scout. He's the mm-hmm. one who uh, Bruce Willis is telling um, uh, your wife's so fat jokes to, uh, and he's supposed to kill him. Anyway, um, there's literally a scene where they confront one of the bad guys, um, it's, it, 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 and, and they're like, come on, guys, you know how this is going to end. It's like the movies. It's like the Magnificent Seven. And the other one goes, hey, I like that movie, you know? Yeah. And, like, <laughs> like there's there's a, a recurrent... Um, there's a recurring uh, theme of Green Acres in that movie, mm-hmm. strangely enough. Like, at one point, they're watching movies at home, and it's like, you know, throw that fool Jethro's ass out. I hate that guy. It's like, yeah, but Ellie Mays fly. You know, they're just talking about Green Acres. It's yeah. got some – it's got a couple of really bad performances in it, but it's bad performances by cool people, like Guru from Gangstar. It's a terrible oh. fucking actor, but uh, he's Guru from Gangstar, so it doesn't – you know. Anyway, it's, it's a fun, like, kind of, you know, comedy adventure movie. A, a total comfort stuff totally a movie i've watched over and over and over um you know it's got like kurt loader as a hitman in it you know oh, lord <laughs> oh yeah oh no uh, it's got maybe maybe the best you know uh, the friend who i watched this with he's like oh no this is the best uh maybe the best ridiculous comic performance by dennis leary um oh, as as their uh as their um sergeant you know, for like, you know, because they be, they become cops. They become yeah. cops, I should say that. Hence, who's the man? You know, mm-hmm. there's a scene with, who's the man? Ed Lover's the man? Oh, you know, Dr. <laughs> Dre's the man? You know. Anyway, if you're not familiar with Ed Lover and Dr. Dre, they were hosts on MTV. Um, was it MTV Raps, I think? Yeah. Uh, Yo MTV Raps. Yo MTV Raps, yes. Yeah. And so this movie is from like, I want to say it's like from what, 91-ish? But like you know, yeah, uh, Colin Quinn is in it. There's a scene where he's playing cards with with House of Pain. Um, oh, you know, it's 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 just it's just stacked. It's it's low. You know, uh, Salt and Pepper have roles in it. Um, yeah, uh, Ice T plays a guy named Chauncey in it who gets clowned for the fact that he goes by the name Night Train, but his real name is Chauncey. It's pretty fantastic. <laughs> anyway, who's the man? We once played at the, at the Alamo. Uh, definitely had a, a great turnout for it. Um, it's very snapshot of a time. I um, love that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what the status of it is. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I watched it on tape. Uh-huh. It's a tape I've had for years. It's a tape I'll keep watching because it, it's who's the man, you know? Did it, you- like, there's a scene where they pull over uh, Busta Rhymes and the rest of uh, um, Leaders of the New School mm-hmm. in a, in a like, a, it looks like a Suzuki Samurai and, uh-huh. and 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 the 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 thing is wall to wall like solid pot smoke, yeah. you know, like it, it's it, it's that kind of movie, you know, right. it's that kind of movie. But it, it also has a great location shot where uh, again with you know Guru's bad acting, uh, a bad location shot, or a great location shot with um, they run over all this is now gone, but they run over um the bridge that uh that was just south of um. Wait a second. They they run over a bridge that's right over the FDR Drive in Harlem oh. that uh, that you would see driving the FDR for years. And there's a scene shot right on the edge of the East River uh, where there used to be like huge piles of salt for salting the roads. Yeah. And you know, being a Westchester guy driving into Manhattan, 
we'd always cut through the Bronx and I drive by it all the time. So it's one of those like, oh shit, it's that spot. It, you know, yeah, just yeah. one of those great recogni- recognition spots. But yes, Who's the Man by Ted Demi. Um, definitely a, a, a fun night with that one. Always. Yeah. Oh, interesting. That uh, again, another one I want to add to my uh, watch list. Ted Demi, the, the late Ted Demi, uh, kind of taken from us too soon. Um, I think he had a heart attack while playing tennis. Yeah, it was a shame, too, because his career was really taken off. Uh, he directed uh, Blow with Johnny Depp. Uh, that's a that's a good one. And he did a great documentary called um, A Decade Under the Influence uh, about, you I know, know the, the name. I, I know uh, of it. I don't think I've ever seen it. It's terrific. It's about the seventies, right? Yeah, it's about seventy, like some of the most important films made in the seventies, and he interviews like many of the directors. Uh, you know, like Panic and Needle Park, just everything you could possibly imagine. He left really no stone left unturned. And I remember specifically that I thought was really cool over the end credits of that documentary. It's him um, going, um, I guess, uh, concluding all of the interviews that he did with all of these directors. And he, with each of these directors uh, and, and and then some, he pulls out his like personal one-sheet posters of every single one of these films and has them all autograph them. I'm like, nice. good on you. You're making this documentary. You may as well get something awesome out of you're it, a, too. You're a shut-in nerd like the rest of us. Fantastic. Yeah, I was like, that's, that's terrific. Um. Well, I guess it's back to me then. Uh, continuing uh, a bit of the Scorsese kick again, uh, trying to cross off um, some of those films that have evaded me for quite some time. Um, I took a gander at 1997's Kundun. Um, it's uh, an interesting film. It's a spiritual splendor, and it's the second in Wait, Scorsese. It, it is a spiritual splendor. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I, I is that like a term? I've never heard that before. Yeah, I'm 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 coining it. <laughs> oh, okay. Like if, if you told me that was like the second title to the movie, Kundun, it's a spiritual splendor of splendor. I'm like, okay, fine. I'm like, now was was the was that so good of a title that you were like, oh wow, it's like now I want to see that. <laughs> I, I, I just I I, I I didn't know what a spiritual splendor was per se, but uh, well, I, you know, I mean, have you seen it before? Out, outside of some awesome alliteration? Uh, no, I have no. I don't know what this movie is. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Um, it it's uh, the second in Scorsese's unofficial faith based trilogy that, of course, started with uh, Last Temptation of Christ. Okay. Um, so Kundun is a sweeping telling of the fourteenth Dalai Lama's rise to power and his struggles um, to maintain uh, Tibet during one of like the most dire moments in in its history okay. this, this um, rings a bell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The uh, Kino had recently put it out. Um, the last few years they had put it out again, one of, you know, uh, the few Scorsese feature films that I had never seen change that recently. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting film. It's, it's rewarded by, I, th- I think a pretty grand script by Melissa Matheson, who of course wrote, um, ET for Spielberg. And then, uh, her last screenplay was the BFG with Spielberg again. Okay. Um, it's got a really, uh, moving score by Philip Glass. Yeah. Um, this film, I guess, you know, unsurprisingly, anytime that uh, Scorsese kind of directly tackles anything of a religious theme, it was uh, plagued with controversy at the time of its release. But uh, I think it's uh, it's a pretty overlooked film, um, and it's definitely uh, achieves a, a visual majesty fit for a king, I would think. Um, We've got majesty and splendor. This is looking yeah. big. 
I'm I'm trying. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't. I wouldn't. I don't want to oversell it. It's 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 more of a film that I think gets wrapped up in um, the visuals. I think um, it, it's it's definitely. I can totally see why this film is probably overlooked because it's not dealing with uh, New York types or um, mafia or gangsters or whatnot. So it's very different. It's a very right. different film than people would expect from Scorsese, but not really. I, I mean, the idea of religion and you know the complexities of of religion and faith that that's all stuff that's woven into all of scorsese's films it's 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 there but this is one of the films that he kind of um you know it's it's very much on the surface it's it's entirely about it so it's an interesting film it's a historical film obviously um but yeah i i thought that it's pretty beautiful to look at um you know decent i mean you know when, when you're comparing it to the rest of scorsese's filmography does it you know does it get to the top five no does it get to the top 10 i wouldn't say so but it's still interesting and i think huh. you know any scorsese that you haven't seen you should probably see it's scorsese for christ's sake yeah i i have to admit there's a lot of them i haven't uh i have not seen i i, I you know i rec- i remember the art i remember the art and the poster um, yeah it's literally just the, the child playing yeah. yeah exactly that's it gotcha well okay. all right uh <laughs> All right. Well, I might as well just throw this in there. Uh, <laughs> now, now that you you know threw a serious documentary uh, into the mix, um, oh, it's a feature. It's a real feature. Oh, I should say. I should, okay, I beg your yeah. pardon. But but like a, 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 a historically based feature. Yeah. yeah. Um, something serious and adult. Uh, <laughs> gonna give you different kind of adult. Uh, this uh, this happens to me sometimes because mine is a world of physical media, not just because of the shit I buy, it's the shit I sell as well, but um, uh, one of the regular record shows that I do is in your state of New Jersey, yes. and uh, one of my peers, perhaps a fellow deviant like myself, a guy who did actually go see movies at Grindhouses in the Bronx and on the Deuce back um, when it was, uh, we will not talk about some of the other things he did on the deuce, but, um, nevertheless, he walks over to me at a record show at this record show. Hey, you know, I, I brought, I got this stuff in here. You, is there anything you need? And it's a cardboard box of, uh, porn tapes. Um, cause he knows that I buy tapes and he's another movie nerd and he's one of the guys who knows his movies really, really well, but I give him a lot of credit. You know, I'd say he's uh mid late fifties at this point. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's 60 yet, but, um, Maybe getting close to it, but he's one of these guys who knows his movies really well, uh, <laughs> porn and not porn. Um, Our kind but of he, people. Yeah, but he's but 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 there's he's got one of those lines, and I, I appreciate this. Uh, no horror, mm-hmm. no horror. Uh, I think some people have lived certain lives. Uh, I mean, not to guess why or why not. He's just he's not a horror guy. He just does sure. not mess with horror, which I think is interesting. Um, just because so many people have that as a bedrock, and I yeah. think it's uh, that is interesting. I, I think I think it's I think it's a little bit leaned on more than it than, than I think is comfortable. But I like to I like I like to mix things up in, in the way where I just talk about pornography after Martin Scorsese. Yeah, um, I like it. Yeah. So no, he brought over a box of uh, of actually like collectible porn tapes for the most part. One Swedish erotica, uh, big box, talk dirty to me. Uh, small box VCX uh, releases of Taboo and Taboo 2. Those are the three movies, or yeah, three of those movies I, I texted a friend. He needed them for his collection because, mm-hmm. uh, yes, people do t- people do collect vintage pornography. 
some of these are considered classics. And I kept a copy for the hell of it, even though it did not have good artwork, of John Holmes and the All-Star Sex Queens. Because uh, not only does it have the amazing... Um, uh, the amazing um, Ushi Digert in it, but it, it's also uh, candy samples. Ooh. And uh, I will try to veer this academically somewhat. Uh, if, uh, if anyone hearing this is not familiar with the Rialto Report, the absolute like best resource oh, for vintage, you know, store really the personal stories behind vintage pornography, the story about candy samples, where they found candy samples before she passed away. They were the people who were responsible to re for really discovering who she was, um, what she could remember, because they got to her when her memory was failing, about her remarkable career. But this is a woman who basically started in pornography. No one knew this until they, until they actually talked to her when she was like 40 years old. Wow. She started like maybe late 30s and definitely worked. I mean, just imagine this. This is the 80s. Yeah. She definitely worked. And she was making, you know hardcore sex films into her 60s wow and you didn't really know it but uh yeah so ushi digard and uh, uh john holmes in his last couple this is the uh, early 80s i think early mid 80s and a older but still um very good looking uh ushi digard is in that movie ushi ushi has an amazing body of work um uh, in mainstream well some mainstream films a shitload of softcore movies she shows up in sam peckinpah's the killer elite She's oh, wow. yeah, small you know, bit part. But yeah, there's you know a picture where she's like topless next to James Kahn in mm -hmm. the killer elite. Uh, <laughs> she's in uh she's in um uh black uh Gestapo with uh oh, Charles like P. Robinson, aka mm -hmm. Mac from Night Court. But um one of the major pinups of uh the 70s, she probably started late 60s, she's still alive. Wow. Uh, someone else who the Rialto Report has spoken about. But anyway, I, I don't want to just lean entirely on, um, you know, the more deviant stuff, though it is important to say that, um, uh, that you know, these are movies too. These are, these are, these are actual, you know, these are actual uh, objects, uh, actual, you know, we want to call them art, not art, but they're, they actually count as well and they should be considered as such. I'm going to throw another one in there quickly. Um, Please. Oh, yeah. Uh, Crown International. I think we've just we've we've skirted the issue a few times about the very yeah. unusual. In some ways, Crown International, uh, the Crown International um, uh, company, um, was very traditional in their maintaining um, one of the oldest rules of exploitation, where mm -hmm. they would um, they would make salacious movies, but they would always deliver the standard moralizing downer ending to them. Like yeah. they did really focus too much on subversive movies uh there are exceptions but um there's one there's one movie i just keep going back to we were throwing around prior to linda cristal uh we're throwing around the idea of uh, anna copry mm -hmm. um who's best remembered for uh, enter the dragon but she did a movie she did a movie with adam west in the mid-70s called the specialist um that uh is on one of those crown um those crown compilations these you know these are the drive-in the 32 drive-in classics compilations that you find yeah. in barrels and like walmart and other big box stores um the specialist is really weird because it's uh and i don't know if it's good 
but that's that happens a lot with Crown International movies. They have they right. make exploitation movies that end up being strangely dry. Like mm-hmm. this is an exploitation movie that is about two lawyers trying to compete with each other. Um, uh, two lawyers and, and one is trying to like underhandedly sabotage the other by sneaking on a copry who is is the titular, the eponymous specialist, um, mm-hmm. as like the secret you know as as the juror who will seduce the Adam West character. Yeah. So yeah. there's a little bit of seduction and a couple of interesting scenes with Anna Capri, um, some wearing lesser clothes than others. But this is a Crown International movie that mostly takes place in a, in, a, in in court. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very it's very weird, but it's got just some prime pretty... for the drive-in crowd, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's just one of the yeah, it, it, totally prime for the drive-in crowd. Totally was made for them, but like would have bored them. But they it, one of those movies that they would have sat through to see what the next movie was on a on a, mm-hmm. a on the the mixed feature. Um, but uh, you know, just one where I'm like. You know, I kept looking at it like, okay, so like there's there's something here, but I'm not exactly sure what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, so the specialist is 1975. Um, the other lawyer, well, there's a couple interesting people in it. Uh, the other lawyer is John Anderson, who has a, a huge um, body of work, did a lot of TV. You'd recognize he's like he's the captain in. Um, Speaking of another movie with Eugene Roche, he's the captain in The Cotton Comes to Harlem. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, Harvey Jason is in it, who's also mm-hmm. also in Gumball Rally to tie that back. Uh, it, it's 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 a it's a wacky movie. Uh, I'm not sure if it's if it's very good, but, um, but <laughs> well, now yeah. you've definitely piqued all of our interests. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe not, but it's one of those like okay, I you know it's one of those movies that it fit on uh, double triple feature bills for like drive-ins or grindhouses. It makes sense also to be on a, a, a like a, a, a you know a low end DVD box set with like yeah. eight other movies. Cause it's like, Oh yeah, what's what's this is okay, but let's try the other one. So right. it's, it's one, it's one of those like very seventies, very of a time, uh, crown international movies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, it, it has something that's in, it, it kind of indescribable. Maybe it's just, it's middle of the roadness for an exploitation yeah. movie. <laughs> Interesting. Well, uh, speaking of middle of the roadness, um, I think that's where my next film uh, more or less falls. Uh, nice. I checked out 1958's The Female Animal. Um, it is the third feature, I believe, in uh, Kino's um, film noir box set, volume one. Uh. Uh, I believe they have about four volumes out now. Um it might even be in the second volume. I think it is actually the second volume. Uh, but yeah, The Female Animal, again, from 1958. Uh, it concerns a scandalous love affair involving a Hollywood nobody who's played by George Nader, an, nice. aging, an, an aging movie star by uh, played by H- uh, Hedy Lamarr, and her flirtatious adoptive daughter, who's played that's, by Jane Powell. That's Headley. Yes, it is Headley. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, yeah. Every time I hear Hedy Lamarr, I have to think of Blazing Saddles. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting, you know, scandalous love affair sounds promising enough, uh, yet the female animal, uh, it ultimately fizzles out into a bit of a B-grade melodrama with too hopeful of an ending, I think, to earn it uh, a place in really the same breath of better hard edge noirs, as much as it's trying to, um, you know, it, it, it of course um, is in a film noir box set, uh, you have some of those touchstones that would 
maybe lump it into noir. It doesn't feel so much noir because, as I mentioned, it kind of fizzles into this B-grade melodrama of sorts. Um, it's interesting. It's not terribly good. Um, although we have um, the cast that we do have in it, and uh, you know, it's a little scandalous uh, for its time. But again, nothing great. I really wanted to like it more because of again, it kind of deals um, with Hollywood and you know, Hollywood players, you know, actors and um, whatnot. Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I guess it would fall under a little bit of a disappointment, but still something that I would recommend just based on the mm. cast and you know the kind of film that it's it's trying to be and ultimately what it becomes might satisfy some people. Some people. Um, some people. <laughs> well, you know, I was just harassing you uh, about the other day about reading the Scotty Bowers book, Full Service. Yeah, you were. Um, and I don't know if this is exactly in the book. I wouldn't be surprised because he does cover Rock Hudson. If, if, if people aren't familiar with Full Service by Scotty Bowers, it's uh, it's well covered, actually, on a Crackpot Cinema episode. But um, uh, it, 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 Scotty Bowers was a guy who fixed up a lot of uh, a lot of tricks, primarily same-sex gay tricks, uh, gay and lesbian tricks in Hollywood with some of the Hollywood's biggest names because he was just the right guy in the right place at a gas station in like what the fifties. Yeah. Um, but uh, George, I mentioned this because um, George Nader uh, was actually um, was actually the boyfriend or the partner of uh, we would say partner nowadays, uh, insinuating gayness. But I think I like partner because it's neutral. Uh, mm. But of uh, of Rock Hudson, George Nader was, and oh. I th- if, to my rec- to my what I understand is they they basically to keep them apart. Um, Hollywood actually figured out a way or they they decided to ship George Nader to Germany. And when you say George Nader to me, uh, one of the wells, and it's a fucking deep one, that I keep meaning to like, you know, kind of spend more time uh, mining. Um, <laughs> you don't mine wells. Uh, anyway, anyway, regardless. <laughs> uh, is, uh, is, is the, the, the uh, Euro spy stuff uh Mm -hmm. the the the, uh, they're not always spoofs as much as like b movies that um that came out around the time uh the spy boom of the 60s but the german one was george nader playing jerry cotton the german james bond was jerry cotton and it was that period of time when george nader was shipped over to germany and ended up living in germany because they wanted to keep him away from rock hudson because of course because rock hudson rock hudson being gay was one of the most Secret. It was one of the biggest secrets in Hollywood. Like they, yeah. they could, they worked extra hard to to keep him closeted or to keep his image, you know, from being uh, affected by that. So as soon right. as you mentioned George Nader, it reminds me of all these Jerry Cotton movies that I need to, uh, you know, that, that I need to see because they just pumped them out. There's, um, let's see, there's two in '65, Mordnacht in Manhattan, and Schusse out to aus dem Gagenkasten. Uh, shot, <laughs> shots, shots, which Geigenkasten means, uh, the, um, oh, what is it? Uh, it, 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 it it's, like a clock, ca- clock case, um, mm-hmm. wooden clock, shoot shots out of the wooden clock. So two and 65, uh, one, one, two, three in 1966. Okay. Mm-hmm. Three, three movies with Jerry sure. Cotton in 66. Then he made, did, he did the million eyes of Samuru. Mm-hmm. which uh, Lindsay Shantef made. And there's a Jess Franco follow-up to that. He made a movie <laughs> in 68 called uh, Dynamite in Gunnar which is an amazing title. It's Dynamite in Green in green, um, green Velvet. 
is this uh, are we sure that some of this material isn't what uh the films that like Rick Dalton were appearing in they feel like eerily similar to the stuff that Tarantino well, those were was... those were Italian but you know all those Euro European movies they use yeah. people from one place or another oh yeah absolutely but it I sounds mean, very dozens. reminiscent yeah there's just dozens and it, it, it's a yeah uh death shots fatal shots on Broadway 69 he made like eight ten movies at least as Jerry Cotton um and and I, it's just one of those things that I you know that I, I I've always been me and, and they're you know they're low rent movies it's just one of those things that where I've always meant to uh to to, to go closer to it because the Italian or just to, to to check out more of them the Italian ones and I'm sure you know you're talking about like Crown International movies I'm I, I'm positive you could find really shitty uh bargain dvds of those in the equivalent of walmart in germany you know sure. like in like <laughs> yeah. dollar stores in, in europe because uh those are beloved movies too uh all right so somehow I, I threw us over to europe so uh i just rewatched a movie that um i don't know if i can recommend but uh oh, just uh <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it, it's one of the nastiest it's one of the nastiest uh, rape sexual assault movies there is. It's Night Night Train Murders, uh, the Italian movie. See that. It's worth watching once. Uh, it, 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 it's worth watching once. It is it is basically an, an Italian an Italian ripoff of um, of wow. Last House on the Left. Yeah, yeah, but it takes place on a train, and uh, I, I I'm uh, I'm a sucker for train movies, um, but. Yeah, but this one it's L'ultimo treno della notte, the the last train of the night. Um, it's 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 an Aldo Lotto movie. He made some pretty strong films. Uh, it's got Flavio Bucci, um, who's in a uh, Suspiria, I think, and uh, Macha Macha Merrill, who's in a uh, um, another Argento, who's in a um, I think it's she's in Deep Red, I believe. Um, it's got some really harsh. It's a really harsh movie. Mm-hmm. It's a, it, but uh, you know, I just wanted to double, you know, check it again because it's been a while since I've seen it. It's it's ugly enough to be like, okay, so that movie just happened. Yeah. Uh, but there's there's another film that uh, th- there, th- so th- that's from '75. There's a 1979 Italian ripoff of this movie, or what oh. seems to be one, which is like I think it's it's the girl in the last car or something like that mm-hmm. that is actually about to come out from. Um, whatever the company is that took over uh, um, Code Red. Uh, I think it's in pre-order stage. And I'm kind of interested oh, in Force, that. yeah. That's it. Um, I'm kind of interested in that. But yeah, you know, Night Train Murders, I, I'm sure there's people who like the most, you know, abusive, nastiest shit. But like, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, a it, it, there's forced sex in it. There's, um. Yeah, it's it, it it is one of the nastier rape revenge movies that does not necessarily have quite as much plot. It just kind of relies on on the deviance angle, yeah. and uh, you know you have to stuff. Yeah, yeah, just you know, uh, I'm I'm okay with strong cinema, but like it, it's 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 uneven. It's it's not well made. I don't think. I mean, mm-hmm. it, I understand that there is a class element to it that of course the italians would have focused on and aldo lotto has talked about but um yeah it's one of those to check out at least once i'd say but um you know be prepared for some you know really hard stuff to watch anyhow interesting 
well, what a great transition back to uh, some transition, more... <laughs> as it were. Yeah, <laughs> yes, uh, uh, reverting once again back to uh, Martin Scorsese, um, really crossing the list off You're entirely. You're fixated, aren't you? The, yeah, this, it, uh, it's just it's just weirdly enough. I, I, I well, Wolf of Wall Street was uh, was a, um, a rewatch uh, Kundun and the next film um, Silence from 2016 were brand new. So as of right now, all I need to see is um, who's that knocking on my door? His uh, Scorsese's first film. That's the only one that I still need to see. But uh, Silence, um, I think it's arguably Scorsese's most powerful installment in his faith-based saga, which, again, started with Last Temptation of Christ through Kundun to Silence. Um, it's uh, it's quite a harrowing experience. Um, it concerns two Christian missionaries who are played by Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver, um, whose beliefs come under fire in Japan, um, where their religion is outlawed um, and their mentor has gone missing. So they kind of go on this mission to uh, okay. retrieve their mentor. Uh, I'm kind of failing. I remember at... this coming out now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm failing. I, I want to say it's. 1700s perhaps uh during this time period where you know uh christianity is just uh, outright uh outlawed in japan um and they're still trying to spread that faith around but of course um their mentor who's played by liam neeson in this film has gone missing uh so yeah silence it's it's exploring uh once again the complexities of religion in in really bold ways i think um it really leaves viewers looking inwards on their own faith uh, while questioning those depths um, with answers that I think, can, depending on the viewer, of course, I think run the gamut of never being found or possibly solidifying roots that you hold dear already. So it's 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 interesting. I think that the film will hit people differently depending on um, how um, deeply religious you are, how much faith you are or have very little so I, I think it's interesting i think that it'll it'll hit people on different levels um i thought that it was very good uh, i think the acting is pretty superb um of course scorsese has a really wonderful eye and in this one just being in a foreign land he kind of really lets that canvas open up really nicely um yeah but uh, like i said out, out of the three of his faith-based films um i think silence has been my favorite mm. um but uh yeah i i would definitely recommend it um Again, it's, you know, it's it's dealing um, with religion. Uh, you know, uh, Scorsese is no stranger to that. Like I said, it's it's woven into his DNA and it's woven into, you know, most, if not all of his films. But uh, Silence and Kundun and Last Temptation of Christ really are um, directly about these things. So they're interesting. Uh, again, great performances. And, you know, any Scorsese you haven't seen, you probably owe it to yourself to at least check these things out at least once. But for what it's worth, I, I would definitely crown Silence as my favorite uh, in this unofficial trilogy for sure. Right on. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't, you know, I've always skipped around with Scorsese, but uh, it's interesting. <laughs> I, I appreciate that you uh, that you have this, com you know, completest angle on it. Um, but uh I just figured because right. there, there were so few left that I needed to cross off. Like, I, I think last year um, I, I managed to finally see After Hours, and that's now in, like, my top ten favorite Scorsese's. Like, oh, yeah. 
could be top I, five. It's I important. got to see it on the big screen once. Uh, Jealous. Uh, we played we played it once. Um, all right, I'm gonna throw two comedies at you. Uh, two kind of forgotten comedies. Pretty forgotten, I think. One of them is from '75. It's a vignette movie called Foreplay. Something I found on a, a, a I think a Vestron tape, and I'm like, what the hell is this? It's got zero mustel in it. It's a three. It's three vignettes that are all related to you know you know. From the name foreplay it, it's uh that are all related to um you know kind of big sex farces uh mm. they are sex farces um erwin professor erwin Corey introduces each one uh one of the directors is john avildsen john g avildsen and bruce wow. malmuth because i think there's you know each one is directed by someone else bruce malmuth is one of the other directors okay. pat paulson is in it paul dooley plays the salesman for this um uh it's 75 so it's a pretty you know preposterously uh um uh constructed like you know robot sex doll that of course is just played by a, a naked woman uh-huh. um jerry orbach is in it um cool. it, you know it's very like pulled off the stage in in some ways uh, again zero must zero mustel plays a double role in the third in the third installment playing not only the president of the united states but playing uh, Don Pasquale, so it's it's, it, it's so Zero Mostel is playing a Godfather ripoff, like you know, mob stereotype. Uh, pretty amusing for that. Uh, I, Estelle Parsons, Estelle Parsons is uh, also plays a double role as his wife and as a barmaid. Oh. Um, and I, yeah, so the final segment segment is uh, what is it? Uh, it? Definitely riffing off of Nixon because um, instead of Trisha Nixon, the, the the child of the of the first lady and the president is Trixie Nixon. Mm. Uh, no, just Trixie, not Nixon. It's Trixie. Basically, she gets kidnapped, and the only way that they um, that the kidnappers will. Um, will release her is if zero Mostel has sex with the first lady live on TV. So <laughs> it's this kind of like ridiculous, you know, goofy seventies movie. Uh, you know, I, I, I got a kick out of it. It was, it was diverting. It's meant to be, uh, you know, a bunch, bunch of cool faces in it. Uh, Andrew Duncan is a character actor, supporting actor, whatever. Uh, um, uh, that, uh, that, uh, you know, pops up in it. Lou David, Pops up in it. He's uh, Lou David plays um, Cropsey in The Burning. Sure. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. And the other one, um, the other one was another like, I think this might not be on disc, uh, is Eat and Run, uh, which is like a wacky, um, it's just a wacky 80s movie. It's from 87. And I don't think I've ever seen the lead, Ron Silver, in a movie this this goofy. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, I love the title. Sounds right up our alley. Uh, yeah. So the synopsis is... Um, a humanoid alien lands on Earth and soon discovers he likes to eat Italian. Italian people, that is. Incompetent detective McSorley which is Ron Silver, and Sorley is spelled with S-O-R-E in it. He's the only one with a clue what, about what's going on, and even his grasp of the situation isn't too firm. The rest of the police force thinks he's crazy, while the alien continues sampling the Italian cuisine of New York City. Uh, you know, he is... Um, Ron Silver is is stiff enough that it kind of works. Yeah, Like, he's actually relatively funny, though it's really kind of something to see Ron Silver, who I really I, I quite like, uh, in a role like this, um, 
definitely like very of its time uh you know there's a uh, all doesn't have quite as many big names in it as as foreplay does um but uh you know goofy like every every second line or every other line is is, is like a, is a sight gag or that kind yeah. of fee you know um but ron silver yeah I, I think ron silver actually is the best part of the movie um but just one of these i don't know if it, if it's on disc but mm-hmm. it's just another one where where I found the tape and I'm like, what kind of like it, this is the kind of movie that would probably play well with Hamburger the movie. Yeah, that's the picture. Uh, but uh, Hamburgers, it, it, you know, is much is much crazier, but it's also much funnier. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Eaton Run from '87 was uh yeah he oh yeah Mick Sorley plays like a 1940s detective. That's the other thing, <laughs> and this is actually delivered pretty well. Ron Silver's character Mick Sorley, he has a habit of narrating like he's narrating <laughs> everything he said as he was frowning drinking a coke and thumbing his you know his 45 he narrates every, he tries to narrate everything and there's literally a scene where he goes to his father for advice and his father does the same thing so, so it's like you could if you can imagine i think it's easy to imagine a guy named like ron silver doing that um ron, ron silver plays one of uh, um I have a soft spot for Ron Silver, basically for the Bruno Janelli character uh, on uh, on the West Wing. Um, uh, he, he had a long career, actually. Uh, it pops up in some 70s, 70s TV stuff. Uh, but yeah, Bruno Giannelli is uh, one of these characters. He He's a political advisor in the West Wing. Uh-huh. Uh, and I apparently they made fun of uh, they made a bit of fun of Ron Silver on the set of the West Wing because uh, he was like the one conservative uh involved in that production they called him ron ron the neocon but anyway <laughs> that's another story um but he he plays bruno gianelli who is an, obviously with a name like bruno gianelli he's an italian but he's from long island and he's the most jewish acting italian <laughs> that you can imagine which to me is perfectly accurate because that character is one that you know and i know and sure. is not unusual in long island he could be yeah. jewish he could be italian he could be both but he has all the affectations uh, I've got a real soft spot for that whole like Jewish Italian crossover. Like any any Jewish actor who plays an Italian or an Italian actor who plays a Jew, to me, like I- I'm already like I- those are my guys. Like yeah, I- I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> I'm on board. Anytime David Proval is in a movie, and it's like mm-hmm. yeah, he he's he's he could be both those things with no problem. Right. Um, right. <laughs> but but it's it's so true to life for the for the for a type of person or you know for for a real life character that you and I know very well. Yes. Really, yeah, affectations. <laughs> could be either and it just mm-hmm. becomes very fluid between Jews and Italians um I don't know just one of those suburban New York City greater New York City New York New Jersey area things yeah that works for me. but Eden Run yeah I think Eden Run will work for if you like goofy uh 80s comedies but um it's pretty goofy sounds good yeah that's that's another one that I'll have to check out um if you will uh indulge me sir um I'll go I will off. I will I will go off on a little bit of a tear because uh, once again, the Mahoning Drive-In um, pops up on our radar. Uh, just last weekend, I came off of a wonderful weekend event that they put on uh, in collaboration with um, our buddies at Exhumed Films. Uh, it came from the 80s, a two-day event um, that screened um, six films across the two nights. Uh, and on Friday night... Uh, we were uh, privy to three 35 millimeter prints. Uh, the first one from 1986, From Beyond, um, a nice uh, revisit. 
uh, not nearly as good as Reanimator, um, the previous year's collaboration between Stuart Gordon and Jeffrey Combs. Not nearly as good as um, uh, Reanimator. Brian Usna also, right? Brian Usna, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brian Usna was the producer on on he both. Usually, he usually produced for for um, Gordon. Gordon, right? yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I with uh, I believe he contributed to the script also on From Beyond um, for this one. So uh, yeah, as I said, not nearly as good as Reanimator. Um, it's definitely lacking the humor um, that made Reanimator so good. This hybrid of of horror and humor. From Beyond's played um, far more straight than that. Um, and while it's not nearly as good, um, the neon pink hues and you know spotlight spotlighting Barbara Crampton strutting around in dominatrix threads definitely add to the appeal of the film. I think. <laughs> yeah. um, when you add in you know some slimy third eyes, alternate dimensions, and of course gallons of gore, um, it, it remains a shame that From Beyond didn't morph into its own franchise. Frankly, while uh, Reanimator had uh, two sequels to it um you know it's it's weird to me that uh during this time where virtually every you know modestly popular horror film would get like a sequel out of it and from beyond beyond somehow didn't but it had so many of the elements that made um a good horror film in the mid to late 80s so again while it's not as good as reanimator i do think that there's um enough merit uh i enjoy it quite enough um Rolling off of that, uh, we got to see a rare 35mm print of 1983's The Keep, and this film is notable because um, it's pretty much evaded um, uh, a home video release on DVD or Blu-ray. Um, at least here in the States. Yeah, the, I, I think I have the German Blu-ray. The German one, yeah, that's that's pretty recent, like in the last year or two, I believe. But yeah, definitely in the States, um, it, it has yet to get a home video release. Um, it's definitely, it's a film that's a tragic case of studio meddling, uh, perfectly demonstrating what happens when Big Brother just has no faith or understanding of their filmmaker's vision. Well, um, wait, 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 hold on. I mean, I think that's accurate, and I think there's a lot to be said for the keep in the form that it's in. And I know there was a director's cut or some access to a director's cut, but this is a Michael Mann movie, you know, who cuts and recuts and restricts access and, you know, to his movies, like almost nobody like him and Friedkin, I I think are two of the only guys who like, like he's very, you know, he, he, he's very meddling with his old projects and he won't let them go. And this one, this is an issue of him, like not letting it like be licensed for domestic release. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he seems to really still have it under lock and key. This is a paramount production, but he still seems to keep this film very much under lock. I get it. (laughs) I get it too. But for all of that, as much as you can kind of chalk this film up and um, it's, it's issues um, to studio meddling and stuff, it's kind of designed to, it can't help but be designed to disappoint, at least in my opinion. Now I had seen this film many years ago on, you know, pretty terrible gray market Blu-rays. So it was really nice to revisit it on as pristine as a print that we got to experience. It was really wonderful. Um, You know, at, at its core, the keep it's got a sound concept going for it you know you know nazi troops unearth an ancient evil and there's a jewish father and daughter that are caught in the crosshairs of this um you know for me and i think of all the issues this film really has 
little going for it for me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as you said, I think that the, there's there's obviously a population of people that uh, c- can speak to its value and its current form. I can't say I'm one of those people. I, I don't really care for it. But, you know, that being said, while it seems like the soul of this picture was like sucked out <laughs> from the studio or top brass or whatever like that, um, it is still a Michael Mann production. And I I think as much as I don't really like to beat this drum too often, I think that the keep is almost ideal for a remake. I just think that the idea Mm -hmm. is so great that I think that if the right components and the right um, people came together, I think that the keep could see um, a new day uh, in in a new version, perhaps, or, you know, a, a remake of some kind, but. Again, uh, seeing it again was great. Again, the print was awesome, but uh, this film just has never really, you know, uh, done much for me. Um, Just closing out this night, uh, the Friday night, we got to end it again on another really great print of uh, Amityville 2, The Possession from 1982. Uh, In my opinion, the best and sleaziest of this Haunted House franchise. Um, Mm. This prequel, which is headed by Burt Young as a deadbeat dad who surprisingly is even crueler here than when he threw Adrian's goddamn Thanksgiving turkey in the street. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, uh, Amityville 2, it's it's really ripe with this uh, really chilling score by Lalo Schifrin, uh, and I, I think really crafty camera work in this one. Um, although it does grow a little long in the tooth, and it sort of morphs into a quasi-exorcist ripoff uh, midway through. I think Amityville 2 still has the goods, even if it requires a, a bit of a cold shower <laughs> by its conclusion, because as, uh, as I mentioned at the start, it, it is quite a sleazy film um, for, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the, re- the topic of incest. Um, and I think mm. it's interesting to note that uh, between having an on-screen abortion a year prior to this film in The Last American Virgin and willingly fucking her brother, willingly fucking her brother in this film, she's not possessed. Diane Franklin is not possessed. She is willingly fucking her brother in this film. Um, I don't think Diane... That, Franklin- I th- by the way, that could be your line. That could be your get naked <laughs> You could maybe say willingly fucking her brother in as many con. Can you say that when you're hosting the movies, the Disney movies? I like, think I'm going to try. Yeah. Just kind of sneak that in there and see what happens. Just see who's really listening. Her- yes, exactly. Yeah, we'll see who's really listening along. But yeah, I mean, between the on-screen abortion and her fucking her brother in this, I don't think that Diane Franklin, uh, gets enough credit for really becoming the poster child for teen trauma at this time in the movies like jesus but uh yeah for all for all that stuff uh yeah amityville 2 is is by far my favorite of this series i've never i've always thought that the original film although it's kind of you know doted upon as this you know bona fide classic i've always found it to be very mediocre i don't know where you fall on that though amityville 2 well the the original uh, you know, I I don't know. I, I have to see them again. I definitely saw the first Amityville on, on TV, uh, which is, you know, probably cut. But, mm. uh, you know, the one I remember the best is the one that I saw in a marathon several years ago, which was the third one, the 3D one. Oh, so, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um Anyway, you were just doing Friday night, or were you going to continue? Um, yeah, I'll 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 switch it over to you before I uh I round up my my final three films. But uh, yeah, please take it over. Oh, okay. So you, the, the, that's how you, I I I get, I get it now. I gotcha. Um, I gotcha. That's it. Uh, wow. I have one, 
two, three. Oh, that's too many. Uh, let's skip through a couple of things. Um, you know, I don't need to talk about No Country for Old Men, but I did rewatch that recently. Very good. Uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, one down, two to go. I hadn't seen in a long time. Uh, another one of the movies that Fred Williamson directed, but he did get Joe Spinell to sit in for clearly one day. So I uh-huh. uh, wanted to see that. Um, unofficial sequel to um, Three the Hard Way. But uh, oh, okay. it, it is one of the, you know, it's a low-rent movie. It's nothing great, but... Um, it does have Richard Roundtree, Jim Brown, Fred Williamson, and Jim Kelly in one movie. Uh, another so, partial, another partial watch that I started. Uh, speaking, speaking of uh, of uh, strong concepts, uh, Cry of a Prostitute. Um, Henry which, Silver. Uh, yeah, yeah, Henry Silver, Bar- Barbara Boucher. Uh, you know, it's, it's one I've started. It's one of the, you know, you talk about the movies that you have to sit down and really focus on. Um, it's one of those Italian police movies, Poliziotteschi, uh, that, um, or Italian crime movies. Uh, it, it hasn't quite catch. Yeah. It hasn't quite picked up my attention very well, even though it is great to watch Silva, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm just skipping around right now. Uh, rewatched Kelly's Heroes a couple a couple times. I think I decided um, I had this fixation already in the early '90s, uh, right around the time that he uh, that he passed away. I think I, I decided I want to be more and more like Telly Savalas in some of his roles. Um, <laughs> like I love the fact that I, I think it's Kelly's Heroes. He keeps saying he he's very angry, mm-hmm. which is not unusual, but he keeps yelling for stay. You know, yeah. Yiddish for <laughs> you get it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I miss a world where someone like Telly Savalas was yelling in Yiddish. Um, I recently watched Amazon Women on the Moon, uh, which has um, a commentary by uh, by Kat Ellinger and Mike McPadden uh, Ooh, that's on, right. on the new Kino disc, which was a shitload of fun. Speaking of Henry Silva, Henry Silva is in that, too, mm-hmm. in the Bullshit or Not segment by uh, Joe Dante. Uh, I you know I remember that movie coming out. I remember um, you know maybe seeing a commercial for it as a kid. I think it's eighty seven, yeah. and uh, I didn't. I never saw it back then. Um, I have that disc. I actually need to catch up with it myself. It's, that's one's always passed me by. There's a good making. Of, there's a lot of extras on it. Uh, cool. But um, and and there's you know they did the commentary on that, which is pretty solid. Speaking of uh, McPadden, you know. Um, Mike McPadden uh, posthumous releases. I watched Smile recently. Oh yeah, uh, I just got I that had, today. I hadn't seen in a while. Uh, Mike did a really nice essay uh, inside the booklet on that. Um, the Healy brothers, Pat Healy and Jim Healy, did the commentary on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, movie has never looked as good as it does, but uh, and and I, look, I, I'm biased. Uh, Fun City Editions is my buddy's label, but um, that's a great movie. Yeah. And uh, it reminds they got, a, me they got a new interview with Bruce Dern on that disc too, I believe. Very, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. He looks, he looks, uh, he looks about like what you'd expect, like an aging, doesn't really give a shit Bruce Dern would look like. Uh, but he's Probably. great. He, it, you know, it, it's a lead role for him. He didn't yeah. actually have that many leads, right? Um, though uh, I have pitched the idea of ta- of of his running movie, of us doing his running movie, mm-hmm. uh, which you might have to go back to. Um, Smiles fantastic. I'm trying to spend a little bit more time focusing. There was, you know, a recent podcast about Smile uh, on um, 
on Michael Ritchie's 70s movies. Uh, I like several of them. Uh, still have not made it through um, semi tough. Uh, they, they all have like a, they all have like a kind of um, lightly, a, a kind of lightly satirical uh, look at American culture and competition, usually within sports. Prime Cut is the is the exception. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Bad News Bears is fantastic. Smile is unbelievably good about you know uh, beauty pageants. Um, but uh, I watched Downhill Racer for the first time. I don't know if you've ever seen oh, that. I have not, but I know of it. Yeah, do do tell. Very interesting. Yeah, you know, you can see the thread there. Uh, not nearly as warm in my experience, but uh, as as uh, Smile or Bad News Bears. But Downhill Racer was very interesting. It's 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 one of the few times, and and, and you know, looking at his career, I am a fan of Robert Redford. It's one of the few times he kind of plays a prick. Yeah. Uh, And he's really a jerk. Um, Little Faust and Big Halsey is another one, which is a pretty interesting, um, uh, pretty interesting 70s movie. um, But yeah, Downhill Racer is most, you know, it's entirely shot in Europe. And it's about um, him being a very ambitious kind of prick downhill ski racer who is not really a team player. And Gene Hackman plays the head of the team. And there's, oh. you know, the Michael Ritchie thing uh, at that period of time. Well, I think you could be argued throughout much of his career, but, you know, there's very different schools of thought on what era of Michael Ritchie is what. Um, it, you know, he kind of he kind of lightly, lightly highlights human folly, you know, mm-hmm. like like it's not it's not biting satire as much as it's kind of putting the spotlight on yeah that's kind of a crappy thing that uh, a crappy or whimsically like foolish thing that um human beings do and there's bits of that in, in that movie but um i need to you know I, I, he has a lot more films than i uh than i realize i haven't seen the survivors um i am a big enough fan of fletch that uh i consider it like a founding part of my personality the uh-huh. character uh, of Fletch, um, and I love the books too. But um, I like Downhill Racer, definitely. Um, Interesting. You mentioned uh, just. I'm sorry. I, I have a couple other, uh, you know, just no- miscellaneous notes. You mentioned. I think you dug yourself a, a well on this one. <laughs> uh, I was thinking about like pairing two sequels a little <laughs> while ago. We were talking about that, but you mentioned yeah. a movie that I think is heavily derided. Uh huh. Uh, which would be the sequel to The Sting, The Sting 2. Yeah. Have you yeah. seen that movie? You know, uh, if I'm being completely honest, I've had the original Sting on Blu-ray for more years than I want to remember, and I still haven't even seen that one yet. Ever seen The Sting? No. How embarrassing that, is that? The Sting, to me, you know, you know we try, we, we really try not to, we really try not to do that, but the other yeah. day, my friend Brian's like, all right, I'm doing it. How dare you? You haven't seen Fast Company. I haven't seen Fast Company. <laughs> Uh, he, he, you know, anyway, we try not to do that. That's a good thing yeah. to not people. That's a good thing to not do. The day comes that any of us has seen everything. Can you imagine how much of a dick we would be? You know, yeah. can you imagine how awful, <laughs> like there's nothing left to see What the hell. Um, yeah. terrible. But, uh, the sting to me is one of those movies I couldn't hide from as a kid. It was on TV <laughs> all the time. But I have, um, you know, that's one of my that's one of my um, soft spots for me. Uh, The caper movie, the caper (laughs) movie, the heist movie, the movie where people are getting over or getting away with some shit. It's like to me, that is 
it may go back to the the fact that the sting was always on channel nine or channel 11 as a kid sure um but uh so i started this thing too the other day <laughs> and i think we have to do it okay and it's not because it's great but because there's already enough going on in it and it's very much aping the original mm-hmm. one and I, I honestly i'm 20 minutes into the damn movie but okay. uh i i think we're gonna have to you're gonna have to watch the damn sting yes uh, yeah but um because you know it makes sense that it's a classic and it's um what is his name jo- uh um george roy hill is that his name the director mm-hmm. uh it, it, it's uh it's definitely one of one of the essential movies of the seventies. Um, yeah, it, it's relatively light, but it's a lot of fun. So uh, and it's and it's got so many people in it. But um, while yeah. while uh, on the topic, just because uh, Robert Redford's on the on the brain right now, if sure. I may suggest a really good film that um, actually turned out to be his curtain call performance, um, the old man and the gun, which oh, uh, was. Yeah, it's very good. He's an aging bank robber who continuously escapes prison to continue to pull off bank jobs. Um, it's He is the lead. It is his film, and he's pursued by Casey Affleck, who plays an FBI agent, and the female lead is Sissy Spacek. So, uh-huh, yeah, there you go. very much a film that it, it kind of it blows your mind that it was made, I believe, in 2018, that a film, a film with these... Uh, actors of you know their caliber speaks for themselves but of their age you don't typically see films um with aging stars you know leading the pack like this was entirely their film and really good performances um wait it's based on the story of forrest tucker yeah yeah wow it's yeah i i i think just because you're talking about heist films it's it's different but i mean knowing uh your love for the sting and and redford i i I think that you'll appreciate it a lot Mm mm-hmm Sounds good. Back so, to you. Um, okay, well, I'll, I'll close off on my final three ones. Again, we're back at the night two of uh, the Mahoning Drive-In and Exhumed Films. It came from the 80s event. Um, so the two films, um, there were three. Uh, one was digital, and I chose to just go into the snack bar and kind of uh, talk shop with one of our pals, Carl. <laughs> Because this was a recent film. You're such a, you're such a snob. Anyway, go on. So. No, no. The reason the reason that I actually skipped the second film was because I did see it um, last year. I saw a print of it last year, and it was Basket Case. I've seen Basket Case many times. Right. Um, but the first film, uh, again, is a classic, and I had never seen a print of it, weirdly enough. 1988's Child's Play. Mm-hmm. For some, I don't know how, I never saw a print of this, so um, this was fun. It, it's really, it's like the premiere killer doll feature um you know child's play uh as much as you know the the you know the franchise kind of started to stray more and more into comedy as it went on um a lot of people forget that that original film blends really cool things like voodoo mysticism and urban terror um, but it, it's far and above the best in, in the the long running franchise. Although I would say that the, the its direct sequel isn't far behind. But yeah, I really like it. I really like the psychological part of it that um, is there for about a quarter of the film, where you're really not sure if that doll is alive or if the kid um, Andy Barkley is crazy. I, I almost feel like the film would have even benefited more if they played with that more. Um, you know, obviously less than halfway through the film, you, you see the point of view of the doll's hand moving. So that illusion 
is shattered there. But I think that if they would have played with that a little bit more, it would it would be an even better movie. But I adore the original Child's Play, so that was a treat. And then the third film of uh, the night, um, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this film. Um, it's a fun one, 1983's Of Unknown Origin. Um, I, starring... I'm pretty sure I saw the same print, actually. Um, yeah, oh, oh, you did? Okay, yeah, cool. Um, yeah, it, it was a good print. It was a really good print. Um, this one, this film, of course, stars Peter Weller uh, as he goes nuclear on a massive subway rat and his uh, New York brownstone in the process. I will say this about this well, film. It, 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 it's New York, Canada, to be fair. This is true, yeah. Well, the the ex- maybe you know this, the exterior of that brownstone, that has been used in several films, right? I feel like I've heard that. I don't know the movie that well, but it sounds right. I, I, just I, know, I feel like there was one exterior shot, but otherwise the rest of it was done in, in Canada, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, because it's all, yeah, everything takes place inside the apartment, so that makes total sense. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the it's fun, you know, it's, it's not like some masterpiece, but it is really fun, um, at times. And I will say, um, if Weller's character didn't patent the baseball bat that he created, he really fucked up because this baseball bat is insane. He spends like mm. all this time, like drilling nails into it and like these huge gaudy, like metal rat traps on the baseball bat. <laughs> so, nice. like, yeah, it, it, it's pretty wild and crazy, um, but it, it, it is a fun one. Not amazing, but but fun enough, definitely, um, as the third film on a, on a triple bill. And then, um, as fun as all the films that I've been talking about, we really end on a horrendous, nauseating note. Um, I don't even know why I, I don't need to defend my, um, my choices, um, but I kind of wish that you would take me to task here a little bit. Because, okay. Because I'm ready. I, I, I chose to watch last night on HBO Max um, uh, Mortal Kombat, the 2021 <laughs> Mortal Kombat, um, wait, if I wait. may. There's a 2021 Mortal Kombat? Yeah, brand new in theaters. I'm still, and, listen, I'm I'm still laughing over the original one, but carry on, go on. Yeah. Um. Well, I will say that um, if I just may, you know, take a little uh, little bit from the Mortal Kombat lingo, this film was flawlessly shitty. <laughs> I mean, just, <laughs> just just like if I could have performed a gruesome fatality on myself, I would have. Like it was just horrendous. Just yeah fucking horrendous i i mean the, the the we've all played the arcade game from from back in the day we all know the concept i, know if I ever did but go on yeah well no yeah i did i played it in the arcade i yeah, mean I come on it, it had to have been in the background of i would pieces. i i i will not deny i'd love to say i i i uh i i missed the trend entirely but yeah i probably played the game i i've never saw any of the movies yeah. as soon as you say mortal Kombat, the first thing i think of is the porn parody uh-huh. <laughs> mortal mortal combat um anyway carry on clever very clever um yeah i mean it's just terrible you know like this film it's this isn't quantum physics that we're dealing with here i mean we're talking about you know a, a, a like a bunch of warriors from earth that have to compete in this like mythical tournament to ensure that like you know evil villains from an outworld don't take over earth it's all based on like the the fight sequences and the fight sequence in this film were so unexciting i i mean like how do you how do you fuck that up you know what i mean and the whole time you know it's just like fucking gross it's just like who do you think this movie was made for 
I mean, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know because if, if people are walking away with this, even saying like, oh, it was pretty good. I like what fucking movie did you see? <laughs> well, listen, people go see. People have always gone to see. As much as I'd love to decry the state of cinema at this point, and I do, uh, people have always gone to see new movies and they're like, oh, it's pretty good, you know, no matter what it was. But yeah. uh, I just figure a movie like that is either trying to capture some kind of the nostalgia for the original game slash movie series. Did they make two or three of them? Of the I games? Think. No, 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 of the movie. The original. Oh, it was uh, two. Yeah, it was two live. Two. It was Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Which was, that's the porn parody title. Never seen it. Uh, <laughs> I'm too busy watching John Holmes and the All-Star Sex Queens. Yeah, you uh, are. <laughs> yeah, uh, but the second, yeah, it's, it's Mortal Kombat, the Annihilation. That's actually the title of the porn. Come on. you know. Just lovely. How, I... how am I supposed to forget a porn parody title like that? Yeah. But I, mean, uh, I figured... Awesome. It's either trying to get the people who cared about the original movies into the theater, or it's like most things that are made by the entertainment industry at this point. It's made for like an under twenty-four year old demographic. Yeah. Uh, you know, I easily write myself out of either of those groups. Like I don't. It's it's you know it's it's this. I say this all the time because I'm an old man who repeats himself. Uh, it's just like, this is the gift of age. You know, yeah. you don't even have, I mean, you don't have to have an opinion about this stuff. You could stand from a distance and point and be like, I see what that is over there, meaning a, a movie or, or, or whatever, or a band or what have you, and say, well, I see what that is over there and it's fine. And, it, you know, it exists and I'm okay with that, but it's not made for me. It's not yeah. made for me. And uh, I don't need to spend my time seeing it, which of course you didn't decide on because you decided you needed to watch it. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I think it was partially because, yeah, I definitely was that demographic that grew up when that game first started. Like, I remember it was like a phenomena, like when that yeah. game came out and we were playing it constantly at home on Super Nintendo and stuff like that. So, yeah, like, sure. I, I mean, like, l let's be honest, uh, Hollywood's attempts at making uh, video game adap film adaptations ha have never panned out well. Just they just haven't. There's not one instance where they were. You're, you're not a fan of the Mario Brothers movie. No, I really am not. I really I've, am I, not. I, I've never seen it, but I remember when it came out, like, I do not do this. I really yeah. don't. But uh, I, when it came out, I'm like, oh, good. You know, one dimensional, one dimensional Italian stereotypes in a movie. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> I will watch Bob Hoskins do almost anything, but I won't watch that. I, those aren't things for me. You know, yeah. those really are like, I, I'm not a. I'm definitely, you know, without putting too much energy into the, the argument that's been made so many times already, I'm definitely not interested in um, the era of time that we're in and its focus on, quote, what they call fan service. Yeah. And the idea of, uh, of, of comic book movies, superhero movies. It, you know, I'm I'm again, I'm busy watching, you know, I'm busy watching Ron Silver do dumb <laughs> comedy from 87 and much happier with that. Yeah, uh, well, well, you it. you certainly hit it because that that's really what Mortal Kombat is. It, it's just like groan inducing fan service. And my, mind you, the, the, the video game franchise is, is very lucrative. It's still going on. I believe that they've had like well over 11 games. So there's a, a fan lot of, base. A lot, of fuck, a lot of fucking people bought the Edsel, too. I don't yeah. care. If shit is lucrative. Like, I, that's yeah. fine. I don't it means I don't... nothing to me. Yeah, it's like I was like just curious because like, oh, wow, it's been, you know, like 20 years since they've like even 
had like the gonads to even attempt this again. So I'm like, I'm mildly curious to see what they can do. Cause maybe like, maybe they'll get a half decent director and, you know, maybe, you know, there's more games. So maybe there's more mythology, but that was part of the thing. It's like, it, it's just, it's just lame fan service. And then it, it was, it's rated R. They made a big deal about it being rated R because the original films were not. And obviously those video games were very violent. So the people, I'm sure fans were like, oh, this is great. Now it can really like embellish what those games were really fine. That's fine. Sure. Sure. So, so if they were that dull, how, do, what did they do to, 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 to reach the R rating? Oh, well that's, that's my do you point. remember. Yeah. Or, oh, yeah. Definitely. What well, would I mean? Like, yeah. There, there's gore. I mean, like, if you had, if you had blocked it out at this point, I wouldn't have blamed. I wouldn't blame no. you. It's it, it was it was just so corny because it's like there's a lot of gore in it. They're they're adhering to these violent you know fight sequences, but it's one of those movies where a lot of the characters are constantly using variations of the term motherfucker or fucker, like almost just to like remind us like wink, wink. Remember guys, this is rated R. <laughs> like mm. it was just, it was just, Oh God. And it was nice and pandering. Huh? Yeah. And it was a hun. It was a uh, hundred and fourteen minutes long. I'm like, <laughs> why was this movie two hours? But surely there's an audience for it. And that audience, uh, apparently it was not me. So yes, I, I, I hate to end my, contributions to this scene report installment on such a on such a sour note but yeah uh, fuck mortal Kombat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it, had you told me it was the original movie and there didn't it wasn't even a remake of it i would believe you too because i i just I, I don't know i just don't pay attention I, that's just me uh i i don't think i listed anything that i that i really you know disliked per se uh i will say i, I will throw one out there you know a couple movies that um you know, one of the things I really do miss about about theaters, and especially about being able to host movies, I, I mentioned this to to someone the other day, to Frank the other day. But uh, yeah, um, I miss I miss the experience of seeing people see a movie for the first time, um, which is part of the reason why I'm coming over as soon as I can yes, uh, to watch a movie with you. But um, is uh, I, I showed a uh, I showed a friend Uptown Saturday Night the other day. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that. That's um, that's one of three movies. I think they're all three directed by Sidney Poitier. So, uh, it's Sidney Poitier and um, and Bill Cosby in the seventies. Kind of, they're somewhere between lightly parodying black action movies of the seventies <laughs> and contributing to them at the same time. Uh-huh. And Up Down Saturday Night is pretty fun. But it's not nearly as good as, uh, in my opinion, as uh, Let's Do It Again, which is the second movie. But mm-hmm. I did just show that to a buddy of mine, and he got a kick out of it. Uh, there's a, you know, a, lot of great, um, a lot of great black actors of the 70s in it besides those two. Um, you know, they have a certain charm to them, definitely. I've, I, to be honest, I've never seen A Piece of the Action, which is the third one. But mm-hmm. uh, it was one of those things where, like, I'm, I was hoping he was enjoying it, and I think he did. But uh, I was like, hmm. Well, we had to watch this one because we got to get to the next one. Because yeah, uh, right. let, you know, let's do it again. I think takes place in uh, New Orleans, um, and uh, yeah, uh, charming movies. A lot, a lot of fun. Um, a lot of great uh, actors in them. Um, but yeah, well, I'm sorry to hear about Mortal Kombat. So. <laughs> Don't worry, it's it's fine. We'll uh, we'll but you, I'll, but I'll you carry did, on. You, but you did that to yourself. I so. did it to myself. Yeah, and that's that's really. Uh, 
that's really what happens. You know, you, you take chances on film. Sometimes they work out for you. Sometimes they're your new favorites or sometimes they're just forgettable fluff as the case with Mortal Kombat. But uh, yeah, that's it. But I mean, I do you have any more to talk about? Because I'm I'm pretty tapped out on my end. Uh, just one quick thing. I'd love we, we you know, we'd love for people to uh, check us out on social media to give us feedback. We are on fa- Facebook, on Instagram at I Eat Movies Podcast. Did get a couple pieces of feedback recently, and oh my god, I'm so grateful for any, anybody who actually wants to hear what the fuck we have to say. <laughs> you, hey, your funeral, people. God help uh, you. But um, for stay, uh, but uh, he, uh, it's funny because they're totally conflicting. Mm-hmm. One of them was like, you know, you got to edit these things down, make them tight, make them perfect. I, I, I just want straight information. You know, you yeah. know, apply Occam's razor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the other one was, no, I love the fact that you guys keep the whole conversation and it's a long conversation and I get all of it and it's like I'm there with you. So I love the fact that I got those two, you know, those two pieces of feedback from people and they're, they're people who know us. Yeah. But, um, but nonetheless, I'd love, you know, we'd love to hear what you think of our palaver about movies. Um, if you just think it's good, if you just think it sucks, that's fine too. Sure. Um but uh we, can we take do it, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's uh <laughs> we want to keep doing this and we 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 love doing this and uh we love talking about uh some of the stuff we like and some of the stuff that we don't like, but um the things that we occupy our time with when we're eating actual sustenance in between eating actual sustenance when we're just eating movies. So, yeah, that's all I got. Indeed. Yeah. And I think that, that that's a strong point as, as much as I, you know, uh, jokingly criticize Mortal Kombat, everything that we talked about today, uh, everything's worth seeing no matter how good or bad it is. You know, I, we definitely oh, yeah. encourage people to never, never turn your back on a movie just based on what uh, somebody says. If you know, if you have an inkling to see something, see it and then see it again, maybe, you know, like just watch more damn movies that that's. That's all we can really encourage, and we definitely hope that you take that um, above all uh, from this podcast. So, uh, you know, for uh, for Dino, I think uh, all we can say to, for you guys is thank you again for tuning in to I Eat Movies number seven, Scene Report, and we will see you uh, next time uh, for one of our uh, more regular installments. I think um, we like but... to, we like we do like to keep regular around here. Yeah, we yeah, we we yeah, we like to keep regular uh, for sure. Uh, but again, guys. Yeah. <laughs> again, guys, thank you again for uh tuning in and until next time, eat more damn movies. Thanks, Dino. Thank you, buddy. I eat.